I'm Jesse. And I'm Josh. And this is Slice by Slice, a podcast where we dissect and discuss horror films by categories and subgenres, such as cults, pagan rituals, franchises, and directors' bodies of work. And of course, we can't dissect and discuss these films in the detail we do without spoilers. Okay, so you are the first non-immediate family member who I've seen face in the past two weeks, and you're on a screen. <laughs> um, I've been out and about, unfortunately, but... Uh, I haven't seen any family members other than the wife. <laughs> I mean, we've done the grocery pickup. So I've seen the person like in my rear view when they're at my trunk while I'm spraying the Lysol back. But <laughs> just kidding. I didn't do that to them. And we're tipping them fat, man. <laughs> they're like uh, almost first responders. That's <laughs> providing groceries to everybody, you know? Yeah. Keep, keeping a fat kid fat. <laughs> it's not hard to keep you fat, Josh. I know, right? Before we ramble too much, I just want to say we're recording this on April the 6th, 2020, just to keep things in perspective. Yes, we're all still quarantined, <laughs> and we're going to cover the disturbing mind of Ari Aster. But before we dive into that, I want to go over some news and announcements, because shit has happened in the uh, past two weeks, and I promise Josh and I won't bitch about the pandemic too much. Yeah, I think we got most of that out of our system. First off, I want to say that on March 24th, we lost Stuart Gordon. Yep. Director of the Reanimator. Yeah, that was a weird tweet to see. I know. I mean, he did more things than Reanimator. He did like From Beyond and and a couple other Lovecraftian films as, as well as some other things. But as far as the podcast goes, Reanimator, that's the one we've covered. Yeah, and he didn't he also do Dolls, which we just watched for the first time like a couple weeks ago. I'm not saying he didn't, but if he did, I don't know. I got you. And, uh, you know, by all accounts, even, you know, before postmortem, he was, uh, everybody says he's a good guy, like just a nice, jolly fellow. So like Santa, <laughs> as far as I know, it was not COVID related though. Right. Yeah. I haven't heard anything saying it was, I think it would be kind of neat since everybody's quarantined. If we kept up with fun things to watch streaming to share with the community, so I would like to say, for anybody who's never seen Killer Clowns from Outer Space, it is now on Netflix. About damn time. For anyone who's ever wanted to check out True Blood or just needs another show because you've binged every fucking thing that you own, HBO is streaming it for free. Huh. As well as some other HBO shows, but that was just the horror one that stuck out. Okay. Lock and Key was renewed for season two. And Nosferatu somehow, which I love the book, haven't finished the first season, because I have too much shit to watch and it deviated too much, but I'm gonna have to finish it now. But that's two wins for Joe Hill. <laughs> I also saw that Mark Duplass is currently working on Creep 3, but he says he's struggling to write it. And I think he's on his third attempt, which he said he almost killed himself right in the second one because a Creep movie's not coming out unless it's perfect. And he just keeps writing it over and over again. Hey, man, if you're listening, which I'm sure he's not, perfection is the enemy of progress. <laughs> if you are listening, though, I saw that you and your brother are helping out indie filmmakers that projects got canceled due to the virus. So that is awesome and cool to you guys for that. Oh, sweet. Candyman is delayed until September. Like a hundred other things. A hundred other things <laughs> are, but that was a horror one that was just recently announced and stuck out. And uh, we don't talk about video games much yet. <laughs> <laughs> You guys will get the joke later on that one, but uh, there's a game coming out. It looks fucking cool called Mortal Shell. I saw the previews. If you like Dark Souls games, it's like that mixed with a bit of Warframe, but it was definitely dark and creepy, and I'm going to play the shit out of it when it comes out. 
Okay. It looked pretty neat. I'd check it out, though. Like, for uh, horror games, I also saw there's a new Resident Evil game being made, and the graphics were extra creepy, and it has first-person mode if you really want to have a heart attack. Dude, friggin' uh, Resident Evil 7 in VR was enough for me. I can't play that game for more than, like, 20 minutes at a time. <laughs> yeah, so the Resident Evil 8 game is supposed to expand on, like, those facial features, but you have a first-person mode. Okay. If you want it. As much work as Josh and I like to think that we put into some of this stuff, we forget things and say things incorrectly sometimes. Wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) Jeremy Renner was nominated for Oscars for Hurt Locker in the town, but he did not actually win them, unfortunately, even though I said that he won Oscars for those movies. Hey, man, that just means that you you think he should have. <laughs> and when we were talking about Idris Alba and we're naming movies, I couldn't think of his name from Thor, even though I'm a comic nerd, but he's Heimdall, the gatekeeper. And let's not forget he was in Pacific Rim and the Losers movie. And he's in lots of voices and cartoons, amongst other things. But I just kind of I felt like we glossed over him. And he was <laughs> one of the he's a pretty popular actor. And I'm gonna butcher a word, which is something else we do on this podcast. But the condition where one eye has a different color. It's called heterochromia because we couldn't think of the fucking word. Is that when your eyes are straight? (laughs) Jesus Christ. There's no stopping me. (laughs) But I would say that's not bad for fuck ups on the the first remote recorded pandemic episode. No, I think we did fine. I mean, half the episode was talking about the pandemic, but it was the pandemic episode. So we got a fucking free pass. I'd give it a third. It was the solid (laughs) third act of the film. Okay. Uh, let's let's quickly do a what we watched here because I, I like that we've been doing that recently. I finished Creep Show and Shutter. Have you watched it yet? Not at all. It's fucking awesome. Do you have Shutter? You better have Shutter. Um, no, we did. Uh, I want to say we did one of the free thirty day trials, but then forgot we had it, and that was it. It's only like three or four dollars a month or some bullshit. It's cheap as hell. All horror fans should have it, especially. If you're the co-host of a horror podcast. Well, see, here's the other problem. The wife is now working from home. So on our DSL, every gig we go over on our plan is $10. So, yeah. Double check. I don't think they can charge you for overages currently. It is AT&T. So who knows? But I will double check. As far as I know, Comcast, AT&T, Charter, like all the big boys, they're all waiving data overages currently. For the pandemic, because they realized that everybody's living from home and working from home and streaming. Yeah, something to look into. But it's awesome. Greg Nicotero is the executive producer. The special effects are pretty good. There's some stories I'd like to to talk to you about at some point if you watch <laughs> it. So let me know when you do. I did get caught up on Supernatural and Legacies on CW, which are guilty pleasures of mine, and I had fallen behind on. And if you have not seen the Tiger King documentary on Netflix, <laughs> it is not horror-related. It is true crime-esque. Fucking crazy ride start to finish. And I saw Tiger. (laughs) I guess you watched it then. (laughs) Yes, we watched the whole thing. Supposedly there's a new episode coming out Friday. Yes, it's supposed to be like amended reboot thing going on. So I'm interested to see what else they're going to put out. I do know the case on Carol Baskins was reopened. Well, on her missing husband. Yeah, under the septic tank. (laughs) (laughs) and i was trying to get caught up on films that you had seen because i thought it would be fun because usually let's like we're talking about different movies yeah i watched vfw okay i tried to watch 
the color out of space, but I, I was way too busy and I could only watch the first 15 minutes. We're going to have to save that one for later. But I liked VFW. There's nothing special about it. No, there's definitely not. <laughs> but it's a fun movie. There was more actors in there than I thought from the previews. Like yes. T-Bird from Crow. Yes. I wish he would have been in it more. Uh, George Went was in it. I didn't know he was in it. I will say, though, the, the beginning part of the movie, it seems like they were allowed to improv their dialogue on the truck ride and setting up in the bar. Yeah. I was like, what is happening? They're just like saying stuff and like looking at each other funny. And then it seemed a little bit more scripted. I do want to say Stephen Lang carried the acting in the movie, though. Yeah, I think my biggest, of course, we're not going to go to a whole thing about it, but my biggest hang up with it is I'm zombied out and it's a zombie movie without zombies. <laughs> it really feels like that. It was cleverly done, though, with the opioid epidemic going on. Eh. Like, they're so tweaked out, they don't know what the fuck's going on, except for they need to snort some coke. <laughs> or hype. Is that what it's called? Hype? Uh, something. I don't remember. It was, it's no feast, all right? This movie wanted to be feast so bad in some scenes. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't have uh, Ben Affleck and Matt Damon to help out. That's why. That's a fucked up thing to say, isn't it? <laughs> and Wes Craven. Do not forget he was in the room, too, for that. Yep, yep. I do want to remind everyone that we are recording remotely. We are each recording our own session and sharing them. I tried to make me sound a little less roomy, but until Josh and I swap some equipment back and forth, we're going to have to bear with it. And that means I'm using the condenser mic with air conditioning units outside the window and a wife and three kids downstairs. So if we hear things, eh, we're just trying to provide content. It'd be right. And the content that we're covering with these movies. I just want to say, this episode is probably going to run long. No, not at all. And I know I said that on the last episode, and it actually didn't run long. But this one's going to, because these movies have a deep dive into them. There's a lot to see and to discuss. And uh, let's face it, guys, most of you are stuck at home, so you got plenty of time to listen to it anyways. <laughs> We're here to talk about Ari Aster. Or Ari Aster, I've heard it both ways. Sorry, dude, you're awesome. If I fucked up your name, I'm sorry. But uh, we got to cover the director a little bit. Now, this isn't like Wes Craven, where we have, you know, an autobiography. Or even Eli Roth, there was quite a bit of information. There's, there's less on Ari Aster. But we got what we got. <laughs> yeah, we got uh, two films and like seven shorts, I think. So he was born in 86 in New York City. So he is four years younger than us. He's doing pretty well for himself so far. Yeah. Obsessed with horror films as a kid, like most of the horror directors were. And he started writing screenplays really early on. And then at some point decided, I think I'm going to have to direct these to make these work. Right. And that's what got him to film school at College of Santa Fe in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And he got a master's in directing after that at AFI. So this guy... He's got the deets for that, right? Yep. And uh, so far, the uh, his DP slash cinematographer that he stayed with, uh, he met at AFI. Yeah, he actually said he made a lot of collaborators while at AFI, and he used them for his, his two films. Yep, yep. He made a couple of short films. One of them is pretty notable and went viral, and you can actually watch it on, I can't remember if it was on YouTube or Vimeo, but it's on one of them. It's about 30 minutes. It was his thesis film from AFI, and it's called The Strange Thing About the Johnsons. 
Have you seen it? I have not, but I can say it is definitely on YouTube because I had it queued up at work today and kept trying to watch it and never got to. Do you know what it's about? Nope. It is about a suburban African-American family growing up where the starting out with a teenage son all the way till he's a grown man has an abusive, incestuous relationship with his father. That sounds like the kind of shit he would write about. (laughs) And there's a couple deaths in it by the end. Okay. Or murders, however you want to say it. It's a uh, 30-minute wild ride, but A24 saw that, and it got notice. And they let him make Hereditary, and there was never a director's cut release of that, but it, it did so well that they let him do that with Midsummer. Those are his two feature-length films. And they'll probably let him make director's cuts going forward. He's doing pretty well. I was thinking he had been nominated for Oscars, but I think it was like actors and actresses from the movies had been. And it, there, he's actually considered being snubbed both times, 2018 and 2019. Okay. Because these are pretty artistic films, and they're very well made. And a lot of people were complaining that us and Midsummer both got snub this year just because they're horror films but Ari Aster has gone on record saying that he's written 10 screenplays and he hopes to have all 10 of them made into films and I'd say the odds are probably pretty good for him at this point yeah he's uh I this is one episode I didn't look at numbers at all but uh the I meant to I forgot the the guy's been unavoidable and the films have been unavoidable um so that's got to speak for something and he's made two movies in two years like I bet we would have had his third film in 2020 if there was not a a pandemic going on. Yeah, possibly. Let's put it this way. Tony Collette didn't want to do any more serious, heavy, or horror roles and read the script. and was like, oh, I got to do this. Yeah. And he is one of those directors that writes and directs his own films. So, I mean, honestly, that's generally a huge plus. Yes. We have talked about that uh, with several people before that it always, you you seem to get the best shit. um, Right. There. I mean, I'm not saying you can't have a director and a writer and have an awesome movie. There's plenty of those. But I mean, even if you look at Saw, but that's more because they're like a duo. Yeah. Right. It wasn't just like a director and a writer. And then then they become friends and become a duo. They were already a duo. You know, it's like it's like Flanagan. I mean, Ari Aster is a big up and coming horror director, and he doesn't necessarily consider his films horror. Even other other parts of the world call some of his movies horror comedies, which is uh I don't think I, we would have covered Midsummer on Horror Comedies Part 3. I just don't, don't see that happening. No, but uh, on on that one, I can definitely understand that. And uh, there's an interview with him where <laughs> where he's asked about that. And he's like, man, every time it gets to that shot at the end with Christian in the bear suit, I giggle. I can't help it. And I'm like, yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, my God. So let's dive into 2018's Hereditary. Like I said, it's written and directed by Ari Aster. It starred Tony Collette, which, I mean, she was famous for United States of Terror, I would say, first. That was a hilarious show. But on the horror scene, she was in Fright Night and Krampus. Yep. And indie movie-wise, she was in Little Miss Sunshine, which a lot of people have seen that. I would count it as a genre-type flick. And Knives Out's been mostly inescapable, and she was in that as well. We also have Millie Shapiro in it as Charlie. This is her first film. However, she played Matilda in Broadway, and I want to say she might have won a Tony, at least got nominated for it. Like, she's highly accredited for playing Matilda. Okay. So that's probably how she got noticed, and she goes to school, or at least went to school, with Alex Wolf, who plays Peter. So they already knew each other a bit, and 
he is, I mean, he's been in a, quite a few things recently, but I would say the bigger things and the things that might stand out to us and our audiences is the rebooted Jumanji movie in the sequel. Yeah. He's the rock, but not the rock. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and the father's played by Gabriel Byrne, which I mean, he's got to go in the fucking legend category, I think, but yeah. just to name a, a few films, Excalibur, personal favorite of mine, <laughs> usual suspects, stigmata into days. Those are horror flicks. And more recently, I would say he's on the or he was on the Vikings TV show and history channel. He's not on that anymore. And the last cast member of the movie I'd like to mention does not necessarily have a lengthy role in the movie, but she is an important role in the film. And that's Ann Dowd, who plays Joan. And I love her in The Leftovers. Her character is fucking fantastic on that. I praise that show all the time. I know she's on The Handmaid's Tale, which I've never heard a bad thing about, and she was on Masters of Sex. Those were like three big recent shows. So she's more of a TV actress, I would say, but a fantastic one. And I didn't see any names that jumped out at me on the special effects. And like I said, we're still both slammed at work and having odd work situations and quarantine, so we do our best here. Yeah. All practical effects, if they could. If it's impossible, they, they wouldn't do any practical effects obviously but Ari Aster is really big for practical effects so he wants them to try to do it whenever they can and what was in the movie I thought was great and we'll get a little deeper into that soon I will say the movie was composed by Colin Stetson who also composed the color out of space which I haven't seen yet but he's the I think the sax player for Arcade Fire and Tom Waits and a couple other bands okay I'm assuming he has solo work also because Ari said that he wrote the script to Hereditary while listening to Colin Stetson albums. So I don't know if he meant like he was listening to Tom Waits or Arcade Fire or maybe he has solo work. I don't know. But he was listening to him when he wrote it. And he's like, I got to get this motherfucker right here. <laughs> he, he probably didn't say that. Every interview I've seen with him, he's like a really quiet guy that seems nervous in front of the mic and says, I'm a lot and does not look like he'd make these fucked up movies. But <laughs> <laughs> he said he was listening to it. And he's like, I got to get this guy to compose this film. And he had Colin Stetson signed on to compose the film two years before the movie actually went in pre-production. Okay. So I guess the music and the sound is a real big part. It is used to great extent in the film. Yeah. Sound design in Hereditary is fucking amazing. Like instruments being used instead of screams in a perfect fucking way and things like that. Yeah. A couple fun facts that don't really pop up as we go through the film. The uh, trailer was actually shown before Peter Rabbit in Australia and kids went screaming out of the theater. <laughs> Whoopsie daisies. <laughs> Which is kind of funny because Ari Aster said the first film he ever saw in theaters was Dick Tracy. Which you remember that, right? He's yeah. only four years younger than us. Yeah. And the Tommy gun scene when it went off, he said he jumped up out of his seat, ran out of the theater and out into the street scared. Oh, wow. And then he makes this shit. <laughs> Ari had Alex and Millie. So Peter and Charlie go out to eat several times together. And Millie wasn't allowed to talk. And Alex would have to try to make her talk the whole time and speak for her to make them more in character. Okay. Also, they went to school together and knew each other from school. And Alex Wolf and Gabriel Byrne had already been in a TV show together on HBO and knew each other pretty well. So they all bonded pretty, pretty decently. And Ari Aster used that to his advantage and kept Tony Collette away from him because she would be the outsider. Hey, because they were like a little click. And that worked definitely for this film. 
Ari Aster doesn't always call this a horror film. He says it's a film about grief and suffering from the loss of a family member. And when he wrote the film, it actually was not a horror movie and did not have the horror elements. He added it after the fact because he thought it would fit nicely. But it's definitely a horror movie. The uh, quote from him that I saw was, that, you know, it's a it's a it's a story about a family and grief. And that's the story he wanted to tell. And that he was able to do it through a genre filter or something similar to that is, is how he worded it. And that's that becomes much more interesting in, in the next film to me personally. But we'll get into that later. But, yeah, he's 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 character driven and. And and it's a little thing. It's a little thing that seems to be what's going on in his films that he just builds this fucked up world around. But we'll get into more of that at the end of the movie. <laughs> and I'm glad you said that. He actually wrote a backstory, a lengthy backstory for every character in this film before he wrote the full script. That sounds like him. <laughs> Honestly, if you think about it, it's a good way to do it. I, I feel really dumb right now, but there's another director that we covered semi-recently I don't remember if it was James Wan or Mike Flanagan. My gut's telling me Flanagan, but he also does that. Whichever other director it is. We've said it before. My gut is telling me Flanagan um, as well. And fuck it. I'm going to say this now. This is one of those times that like Flanagan comes on the scene. He's like, I'm going to reinvent the horror genre. And Ari Aster comes in and goes, hold my beer. (laughs) (laughs) I do want to say this is another one of those episodes where I told Josh, hey, I want to do this. And he's like, oh, yeah, and, and then he watches the movies and he gets super excited. I'll, I'll explain why uh, uh, when you're done covering Hereditary. My last little tidbit here. The movie was shot in 32 days. I'd say that's about standard for a horror movie, or is that still short for a horror film? That's short for what all they did in this film. Definitely short for what they did in this film, but I always think Halloween was made in, what, like 28, 29 days or something, but there's a lot going on in this movie. Yeah. I'll get to it as we go, but the stuff that he did with like miniatures and the set for the house and stuff, I mean, just every, the house has to be a fucking character he wrote a backstory for. <laughs> but the movie, we open up with an obituary of Ellen Taper Lee, who passed away at the age of 78 at her daughter Annie's house. She had lost her son and her husband before she passed away, and she's only survived by her daughter Annie, who has a husband, a son, and a daughter. And that's the only family mentioned in the obituary. We then cut to a shot of this bitchin' ass treehouse outside of a window. Like, we're in a bedroom looking out a window at the treehouse, and the camera pulls back and pans to a room full of miniatures and miniature sets. The camera then focuses on a house, zooms in on a room full of miniatures, pulls all the way into it, and then the door opens and Gabriel Byrne walks in. And it's fucking seamless. Yeah. Ari Aster had his special effects guys and a miniaturist build the sets or the, the miniature houses and the characters. And there's an actual house used for the exterior, but any interior shot is on a soundstage so that any shot of any room could be shot like the dollhouse. Genius. It's fucking awesome. If you pay attention, the inside of the house cannot actually exist from what you see from the outside either. So it's got that whole Stanley Kubrick shining (laughs) thing going on the back of your head. Yes. But when we see Gabriel Byrne walk in, it's into a boy's bedroom. He's asleep in the bed. And that is Peter and his father, Steve wakes him up because they got to get ready to go somewhere. Right. And he's like, we got to go son. So obviously it's something important, but basically pops is trying to get 
all the kids and his wife out to grandma's funeral that we just saw the obituary for, right? So he's got Peter awake. He has to go find Charlie. She's asleep in the treehouse, and he makes a big deal about how it's so cold outside she could have caught pneumonia, and he doesn't know how she slept out there or why. And he has to get his wife going. Uh, I think she's in the car, right? Like, she's just ready to roll. Yeah. But we see Annie, who's Tony Collette, giving a eulogy for her mother at a funeral, and the camera is making lots of pans in this scene around around her and the room, and it makes you pretty uncomfortable. And she specifically mentions that her mother, Ellen, was very secretive and private, and she's surprised to see so many people there. And the eulogy continues, but it cuts back and forth between that and the visitation, right? And if you notice, with a keen eye, I'm going to make the keen eye joke many times (laughs) on this episode, Annie and Ellen have the same necklace on. And I'm going to get into that symbol multiple times, but we'll hold off on it for now. And also, you'll notice there's a very creepy, smiling man staring at Charlie. And we're going to get back to that guy, too. Yeah, at the coffin. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I do want to point out, though, that uh, there's a photo of her mother next to the podium, okay? And it's facing, like, one direction. And the camera will pan and cut to the visitation and then cut back to Annie. And every time it cuts back to her, the picture is actually angled differently so that it's always staring at the camera. And it appears that the photo is following you. Yeah, like it's overtaking the shot every time. It's creepy. And it's because this motherfucker knows what he's doing. (laughs) I had read somewhere that he had had the entire cinematography written out before he had scouted scenes, like a whole cinematography book. Based on interviews, he's that kind of guy. Actually, Tony Collette said that he's the most prepared director she's ever worked with in her life. And this was his first film. Yeah, it's crazy. There's it's almost, you know, we've talked about uh, Sam Raimi where it's like he already has it all figured out, all the blocking, all the angles, all the editing before he starts doing anything. Uh, this guy seems to be that to like the nth degree. I would say mentally they're probably to the the same degree, but Sam Raimi is like the punk rock version. right? <laughs> <laughs> True. I'm going to accidentally derail and I'm going to try to minimize that this episode due to the length. But (laughs) I am so glad to find out that Sam Raimi is actually officially making the new Doctor Strange movie and not just rumored anymore because it's going to get very Lovecraftian. And I'm excited because even though, I mean, shit was changed in the Spider-Man movies and the third one sucked, the first one was awesome. And the guy has a passion for it. And Doctor Strange, and I think it's called, it's not Mouth of Madness, but it's something like that. Like it's going into that whole old gods thing it's gonna be awesome i hope no shit okay i'll finally drag you to another comic book film like when we were teenagers (laughs) but back to this fucking depressing ass funeral because a lot of shit in this movie is depressing as hell we see that charlie the daughter who's been acting odd this whole time is doing this weird clucking sound with her mouth which was on the trailer predominantly and she's drawing yeah there we go And we also see her drawing these really creepy photos of people, and she's eating a shit ton of chocolate. Oh, and she catches an older woman rubbing something on Ellen's lips, which is a little bit odd. Yep. But after the depressing funeral ends, we cut to their home where they pull up, and they arrive at their home and come in the front door to do their daily grind. And Annie's unsure if she should be sad or not, because she doesn't feel sad, and she's asking Steve if that's okay, her husband, who's also a psychologist. And he's basically just checking on the family and trying to hold shit together. I do want to point out, though, and I hope you notice this, when they walk up to the front porch and the camera cuts into the house to the entryway, you can hear footsteps on wood and doors slamming and locking. 
I thought I noticed a little bit, but I didn't know what kind of movie I was in for. So I didn't pay that much attention yet. But as they're going through the daily grind, we see Annie check on Charlie and she lets Charlie know that she was Grandma's favorite and that Grandma wouldn't even let Annie feed her when she was a baby. And Charlie says, but Grandma always wanted me to be a boy. And then she asks her mom a really weird question. She says, who's going to take care of me now? And Annie says, well, I am. And she goes, yeah, but who's going to take care of me after you die? (laughs) Foreshadowing. I'm going to point out these random ass words on the walls in this home as we go. And at the end, I'll I'll come back to them. Okay. But uh, Satoni, if I, if I, if I butcher the words, I'm sorry, but it's written on the wall in this scene. Okay. Sounds kind of Satan. And we'll go into that in a little bit as well. (laughs) Annie goes into her art studio before going to bed though. And she looks at a box of her mother's belongings and she finds a book on spiritualism. And inside it is a note to Annie from her mom. And I notated the whole note. So I'll read it to you now. My darling, dear, beautiful Annie, forgive me all the things I could not tell you. Please don't hate me and try not to despair your losses. You will see in the end that they were worth it. Our sacrifice will pale next to the rewards. Love, Mommy. There's definitely some broken English in there, but you hear that she had dementia and other shit wrong with her at the end. So, yeah. Annie shakes her head at the note and throws it in the box, and she goes to leave the room, and she turns off the light. As she looks into the darkness, you can barely make out her mother, and it's creepy as fuck looking, and Annie sees this and turns on the light, but when she does, she's gone. She says, Mom, and then goes to a miniature in the room and turns it away from her so she doesn't have to see it. If you look at the miniature, it's Annie trying to breastfeed the baby while Grandma's standing there with her breast out, like, give me the baby, I'll breastfeed her, and that means when she said, when, when Annie said to Charlie... She wouldn't even let me feed you. She was being literal on the breastfeeding. Yeah, I do have to point out one thing in that shot real quick. So I'm sitting directly in front of the TV and Ginger's off to the side on the end of the couch while we're watching it. And it gets to that shot and I see nothing but a black screen. And I'm like, what was the whole big deal about that? She's like, did you not see grandma? And I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? And I made her rewind it twice and I got mad and stood up to go walking closer to the TV. And as soon as I got off axis, I could see it. And it was totally made shit weird to me to the point where I was having to like sit on the end of the couch for the rest of the movie. But I have pictures I will send you of different angles of my TV to where I couldn't see shit. And when when she goes all ninja towards the end of the movie, that shit happened again. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the ninja shit was mostly intentional and I experienced that in the theater with other people. I caught it. I will say I caught the grandmother pretty easily in the theater and when I was watching the film for the podcast and you had already told me this, so I went back and watched it again. I could not make it where I couldn't see it from different angles. Oh, so really? I wonder it's got to be like a color lighting situation that you have going on our gamma thing because it's that's one of the more predominant shadowy things in the movie, I felt like. But I definitely want to put your photos of the different viewing angles on our Instagram because that goes into your weird-ass conspiracy haunted shit that happens <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> anyway, sorry. I had to bring that up. I'm going to dive a little bit more later into Ellen taking care of Charlie, though, later in the film. A lot of the shit's going to come back. And this is definitely one of those movies, I hate to say it, that a second viewing is just phenomenal because <laughs> you're less scared and you focus more on things. Yeah. But at this point we, we cut to see what Charlie and Peter are doing at school the next day. 
And we see that Charlie's making a toy during a quiz in her class and her teacher gets onto her and then a bird randomly fucking slams into the window and dies while she's doing this. And we see Charlie eye a pair of scissors on the table. Meanwhile, in Peter's class, he's checking out the girl in front of him. Well, her ass anyways, <laughs> while his buddies text him about smoking a bowl after class. I want to point out that the teacher, if you're listening to him in the background, he's talking about Heracles not having a choice and not being in control of anything. And then one of the students starts talking about how the characters are all pawns in a hopeless machine and have no choice to control their outcome. Foreshadowing. I also want to point out that I read that Ari Aster had the Jamie Lee Curtis in class for Halloween as the inspiration for that scene. Could totally see that. But anyways, we see Charlie on recess and she's just, fucking chowing down on a chocolate bar. I'll hit that up later because that's just a regular thing she does. And she finds the dead bird. And if she's not creepy enough, she cuts its fucking head off and pockets it. Yep. And then we notice a woman across the street watching her. But we cut back to the house and it's nighttime now. And we see that Annie is both working on miniatures and researching the paranormal, which is something I might be doing too. If I had just seen my dead mother smiling at me in a dark room. Absolutely. Or just smoking a lot of weed. <laughs> Drugs don't come in until the next film. Actually, that's a lie. There's a lot of weed smoke in this movie. I forgot about that. But not with Annie. No, no. But Steve comes home and as Annie goes to greet him, she notices that her mom's bedroom door is open and that there's a weird triangle on the floor with one bed foot in. And I don't know if that's supposed to represent we're one foot in now. You know what I mean? Like into the fucking shit. I took it as that, <laughs> but apparently the door's supposed to be shut and it freaks her out bad enough that she has Steve lock it to stop creeping her out. And he's like, I understand. I understand. That's one of the scenarios where I read online. Apparently the triangle is pointing Northwest, which uh, is going to come into some lore in a bit. I just don't know how you're supposed to figure out which way is Northwest unless people are paying attention to where the sun is certain fucking times of day. And I'm sorry, but I didn't catch that. I just remember as soon as that shot happened, Ginger goes, mom was a witch. <laughs> <laughs> but right about this time, Steve's phone rings and it's the cemetery calling to say that Ellen's grave has been desecrated and he wants to know what's going on. So uh, Steve, being a great husband, just tells her the truth. Just some billing crap. Annie, also being the pillar of truth, tells Steve that she's going to go to the movies. But she actually goes to like a self-help group on losing a loved one. And long story short, she talks about her mother and her mom losing her mind at the end and her dad being crazy and killing himself and her brother being a schizophrenic person who accused his mother of trying to put people inside of him and then also committed suicide. We find out that Annie kept Peter away from Ellen on purpose, but then she let Ellen get her hooks into Charlie because she felt so bad. And then we cut to Peter in his room and we see that he's smoking pot. And he goes to blow the smoke out the window, which is open behind him. And the camera cuts to like the outside the treehouse perspective. And you can see his smoke come out of his mouth. And then you see like it's cold outside and somebody's breathing come out of the treehouse. And then you're like, did I actually see that? And then it <laughs> happens a second time. <laughs> Just in case. And you can kind of see the shadow of something on the left side, which you probably think's a treehouse until you see the breath. So there's somebody watching him from outside. Yeah. The next day, we can see that Charlie is working on a toy in a room, and we see this odd light wave, is the best way I can describe it, go 
through the screen, across the wall, and to her window. Charlie sees this. This isn't some shit that just we see. <laughs> and we cut between Annie making dinner, working on her miniatures, and Charlie walking from the treehouse with the bird head into the field that she looked out like over from her window in her room, right? Yeah. And she's walking on existing foot tracks, if you pay attention. Yep. But we cut from there to Peter asking if he can borrow the car to go to a friend's house that night because earlier in his text messages, he was told to bring his dick to this party, right? And Because it's Chicky Poo's party. A, <laughs> yeah. And there's a lot of back and forth on is there going to be drinking and he's given like normal teenage answers and your mom, his mom's like, cut the shit. Like, yeah, <laughs> I know there's going to be drinking. Are you going to be drinking? <laughs> and she basically tells him he has to take his sister with him and he better not drink if his sister's in the car. While this is going on, we can see Charlie walking through the field because it's just cutting back and forth. OK, and there's dramatic music playing and we see that she's actually walking towards her grandmother setting in the field in front of a fire. So the foot tracks had to have been either cultist bringing the body and setting it there or some form of necromancy moving the body. And yeah. I'm going to get into that later in more detail, but I just want to reference the footsteps and the door locking at the beginning. Okay. So you don't know who's been in the house for how long, whether it's living in an attic or grandma's room. Yeah. Okay, I just want to point that out. But we cut to the party where Peter reluctantly drove his sister and she's making that odd clucking sound again in the background. I want to point out she also made that sound in her room when the light came in and she was making the sound in the field. And I also I know she did it at the funeral, but I think I already said that. Yeah, she's uh, there's something going on. And the the blue stuff, it doesn't look just like it, but it reminds me of when people start seeing time in Donnie Darko, like that kind yeah. of vibe. It's weird because that it's the one set of special effects that stands out like it doesn't fit. And I think it was intentional. Yeah. Without being overbearing. It's it's very interesting. It's, it's a slick fucking film. I'm actually curious how he did it. I mean, I'm assuming it was CGI, but I almost would. Fe- I almost feel like it's like old school, like on the it depends if you shot it digital or not, but it almost feels like old school Star Wars on the film as it goes. Yeah, it, right. It looks optical. It does not. It you know like CGI blood. It's like so obvious that it's CGI blood. This doesn't look on top of it like that. It feels optical. It's it's really really slick. Everything's slick. I'm about to get to another slick thing. <laughs> While Peter's driving the car to the party, it flies past a pole. Okay, and the camera's pulled out from from like the dirt on the side of the road. And as it goes past the pole, the camera that was following him harshly stops like the car slammed into the pole. But the car keeps going. But the camera work had to have been intentional. And if you pay attention with that keen eye, you'll notice the symbol that was on Annie and Ellen's necklace is on the pole. Yep. At the house party, we see uh, that Peter goes into the back room with his dream girl and his friend to smoke some pot. And he's drinking and shit, and he leaves his sister in the main party room like an idiot, right? (laughs) (laughs) And while he's in there, his sister eats some cake that we saw people making at the beginning. We saw him cutting pecans up, right? So there's nuts in it. And we find out she's highly allergic to nuts. And for some reason, her family didn't send a fucking EpiPen with her. Yeah, they bring it up at uh, the funeral because she's eating that chocolate bar. And it's like, hey, does that have nuts in it? No, good. We didn't bring your EpiPen. 
Right, right. So apparently that's a common theme to not bring the EpiPen. And I'm going to revisit the scene later when I cover deleted scenes, but I, I kind of okay. want to do those all in one go. Okay. Peter quickly tries to get his sister to the hospital, though. Like when he sees her not breathing, he's, he freaks out. He cares about his sister. He wants to save her, right? Yeah. He loads her in the car and he starts hauling ass for the hospital. At some point, Charlie hangs out the window to get some fresh air and Peter has to swerve to not hit a dead deer in the road. As he does this, Charlie is decapitated by the pole that we saw earlier. It is very sudden, it is very tragic, and it is very graphic and happens as quick as I just said it. I was fixing to say, and we don't even get to see for sure that there was a full-on decapitation. We just know there was an impact, because we don't see you her after You fucking heard it. You heard it, though. <laughs> okay, I'm not well-versed in the sound of a decapitation by telephone pole. <laughs> <laughs> it just sounds graphic enough. Something happened. But like Josh said, there's very little blood shown when this occurs. However... The use of red brake lights in the scene is fucking fantastic. Peter, the camera's in front of his face looking over his shoulder or looking directly at his face and you can see over his shoulder and the red brake lights are glowing very brightly over his shoulder where you would expect to just see fucking blood everywhere. And then he looks in his side mirror and his rear view mirror and all you can see is the red light in a way that would have been blood in a normal movie. And this movie is definitely fucking rated R and... (laughs) Kudos for him for doing it that way. I would have, I just would have never thought of something that cool. Yeah. But at this point, Peter basically breaks down mentally, starts crying and then stops and essentially refuses to believe what has just happened. And he just drives home and goes to bed with his decapitated sister's body in the backseat of the car. A few things I want to point out about the scene. Once again, what the fuck? <laughs> Especially in theaters. Like it was just like, oh my God. Ari Aster says it's his favorite 15 minutes of the film, like leading up to the party, the decapitation, and then up to the next morning. That's the part that sucked me in more than any other part of the movie. I I totally get where he's coming from on that because the reveal that we're about to get to, like I said, I didn't notice that it was a decapitation. When it gets to the reveal and that stinger, when it cuts to the next day. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm so invested. Like you got me, (laughs) you got me by the balls at that point in this movie. I'm so invested. Because the movie, I mean, It's slow, but not slow in a way where you're bored. But you're like, okay, when's the horror going to come? Other than creepy mom, right? Like creepy grandma in the dark. And then like, you're like, okay, I see what he's doing now. (laughs) The the actress, Millie Shapiro, also loves this scene. But that's because she said it was fun to film because that's actually her hanging out of the car. And they had her rigged into a harness. And... She said it was like a roller coaster. She just got to fucking ride down the street. I mean, obviously not into the pole, but, <laughs> but you know, they, the scenes of her head hanging out of the car as it's driving was an actual thing. And she thought it was a lot of fun. Okay. It's a mind fuck on many levels, but I, I want to point out that Charlie was on all the posters and in all the trailers and shown to be the main character. So it's just like Janet Lee and psycho and drew Barrymore and scream. <laughs> You think she's a main character, and then she's dead. And I saw this on multiple accounts, but I didn't have the time to like straight up dig the news article. But I heard this happened in Georgia for real. There were two drunk guys at a party. One of them was driving. The other one was in the back seat. He hung his head out to get some fresh air. Drunk guy swerved. Buddy slammed his head in the pole, ripped his head off, and died. Nice. His buddy was so drunk that he forgot his buddy was supposed to be in the back car because he was being quiet and just went home and passed out drunk with the body in the backseat. Okay. Art imitating life. Did mom come out the next morning? 
<laughs> I don't know. I don't know past that. <laughs> okay. But really, though, it's a very fucking dark and eerie scene. Peter, this actor, I mean, I feel like he doesn't get a lot of dialogue in the movies, but his face is crying when he does get the talk. He's a, he's a great fucking actor. And just watching him not talk yeah. as he goes home, walks to his bedroom, go to bed. Uh, it's just fucked up. You just watch that face on his face. <laughs> Sadly enough, when he's walking to his room, if you pay attention, you can hear his parents in the background and you hear Annie say, oh, thank God they're home. And and Steve says something like, thank God or something. Right. Like they're so excited. The kids made it home safe. Yeah, no. <laughs> Which they didn't. <laughs> the next morning, though, it gets even more rough. You can see Peter still lying in bed awake, right? Like the camera basically just stays on his face as the sun comes up. And you can hear his mother say she's going out of the house to the store to get something. And then you hear the car door and then you just hear the most heartbreaking, dramatic scream you've ever heard on film or in your life. I just want to die. Over the next few scenes, we see a disturbing image of Charlie's decapitated head on the side of the road covered in ants while we hear mom crying. You're like covered. We see Peter zoned out, Steve trying to keep the fucking family together, and another funeral with this cool zoom out thing (laughs) where it pulls out from the funeral and then you can see the dirt going all the way down. Yeah. Like the cemetery was one of the miniatures, basically, right? Yeah. Kind of Beetlejuice-like if they remade Beetlejuice. I was so fixing to say that. (laughs) I want to point out that as it shows a wall in this scene, you can see the word Zazas or Zazas, Z-A-Z-A-S on the wall. Okay, not Pazuzu. (laughs) (laughs) What makes this scene more fucked up to me is that you never actually see the family discuss what happened with Peter or with the authorities. It's like it never happened except for the grieving. Whereas a normal movie, you'd see the, the, the person being blamed. You see the police interviewing people. And it was just left out. Now, when I get to the deleted scenes, I'm going to come back to that a bit, actually. Okay. But right now we're talking about the movie. That night, we see Peter go to bed and he looks at the treehouse and this eerie red light comes on from the inside of the treehouse. We see Steve going through Charlie's art book in her room, and we see a bird head with a crown on it. We'll hit that up a few times later. And we cut back and see that the red light was not anything supernatural. It was a heater from Annie sleeping in the treehouse because us mere mortals need heat when we sleep outside in the cold. (laughs) Just saying. Oh, no. I know what you're saying. (laughs) Over the next few days, we see that neither Peter or Annie or handling grieving in a healthy way. And who am I to say what is a healthy way to handle grieving? But I can definitely say that the way they're reacting is not. <laughs> yeah, no, no shit. <laughs> we can see Peter freaking out in class. We can see him having a panic attack under the bleachers when he's smoking pot with his friends. I just want to point out man bun friend he's smoking pot with for now. I'll come back to him later. And we see his mom's hiding in the car and shit, spying on him when he comes home one night. Like she doesn't even want to talk to him or acknowledge his existence. Yep. And she sneaks off to her self-help group again. And she manages to not stay at her self-help meeting. She doesn't even manage to get out of the fucking car. She immediately backs up to leave. However, she's flagged down by Joan 
who was apparently in the meeting earlier, and she's from the group. And she talks about how she lost her child and grandson in the past, like, six to nine months. And basically, they have common ground now. And, you know, she's an older woman, and she's trying to console Annie and gives her her number or her contact info. You know, she says this might seem strange, but people need to talk to people. And she seems caring. I have to give the wife props again, because in this scene, she goes, she was one of mom's friends, one of her, one of her secretive friends. Like, the wife nailed this movie for like 75% of it. And I'm just like, shh, shh. (laughs) (laughs) Did she enjoy it, though? I was actually curious if she enjoyed the film. Oh, yeah, she liked it. That night, though, we see that Annie is regularly sleeping in the treehouse. She's not sleeping in bed with her husband. And we also see that Peter is also having trouble sleeping at night. And he stares out the window a lot. And you can see the reflection of the heater in his eyes, but it's only on his pupils. So his pupils are glowing red and he looks like a fucking demon. Foreshadowing. (laughs) Peter randomly hears the odd clucking sound that his sister would make. And he jumps up to look around the room. I also jumped <laughs> every time I've seen this movie. Granted, I've seen it twice. Well, I saw it once in theaters, jumped. I saw it once for the podcast, jumped. And then I just watched the movie. The rest of the time, I just watched the movie in, in random pieces for, for research purposes. But okay. he jumps up and he sees an optical illusion of a chair with clothes hanging on it and some clothes behind it. And it looks like a person just enough to creep you out. Yep. And that's the thing with this movie. There's a lot of hidden imagery to scare the fuck out of you. And there's a lot of hidden red herrings to make you look at the background and think it's something. And this one is obvious. There's some that aren't obvious and the camera doesn't focus on and you see it and you're like, oh, shit. And then you realize it's not anything. And it makes you comfortable and numb to background objects in the dark until it's not okay to be numb to it. Yeah. But the next day, not everybody catches this, but you see a full slot of mail in their mail slot on the door like it's been sitting there for a while. And then you randomly see someone put a flyer on top of the mail for a seance. Okay. It was not part of the mail. It was not delivered by the postal worker. It was added after the fact. Yeah. We then see that Annie's working on a project and we don't know what kind of time has occurred, but we see her reach for something and she knocks over a bottle of green paint by accident. But wait, no, she doesn't. If you watch, her hand is nowhere near the fucking bottle. It just flips over randomly, okay? And it's not like a special effects oopsie daisies. This is intentional. (laughs) And the paint falls on a piece of paper, and she picks it up. And what is it? It's Joan's name and phone number. What a coincidence. Yeah. That's the point where I started thinking, like, I thought what your wife thought the first time I saw this in theaters, but the paint is when it clicked in. So I'm one of those that um, until watching something else, I was watching a uh, a side-by-side interview thing about the two movies and they brought up this scene and like, I didn't notice that she didn't hit the paint. I didn't notice that the blue flash happened in the background. I I totally thought it was all just an accident. <laughs> I, I forgot to mention the flash. Just about any time anything odd or supernatural happens, the blue light is somewhere in the room. Yeah, it starts showing up more and more as we keep going through the movie. And then it'll make sense a little bit more when I get to the end and, and break it down a bit, which I'll try to get there. I'm sorry. Yeah, the part where everybody goes, what the fuck? Like seven times <laughs> over 15 minutes. <laughs> and then for the next two days, we're trying to figure out what we just watched. <laughs> and not because it was unclear, but just because you're that broken at that point. But uh, Annie, looking at this note, thinks it's very serendipitous. And she decides to take a trip to Joan's house and take her up on that offer. Right. So she heads to the apartment. 
and she notices a welcome mat as she knocks on the door that says Joni with a with a pattern around it. And Joan lets her in, and Annie lets Joan know that her mom used to make embroidered objects exactly like that. Hmm. Isn't that funny? But basically, Annie tells Joan everything she's going through over some tea. And this tea happens to have this odd black leaf in it that Joan smiles at. And I heard some references to Charlie getting the leaf as a baby. I didn't catch that shit, so I can't really fucking apparently it's a picture on a refrigerator i couldn't see it enough to confirm it huh more than thinking it's a crazy conspiracy theory okay but what is a fact is there's this weird black leaf that annie pulls out of her mouth and joan definitely smirks at it yeah but joan seems very interested in annie's relationship with her son peter and annie tells this really fucked up story about how she was sleepwalking one night and while doing so she poured paint thinner all over peter and only woke up to the sound of her lighting a match, which also woke up Peter. I don't think we can call this sleepwalking at this point, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> and for some reason, Annie doesn't understand why Peter just can't let it go. I have a theory or two. <laughs> <laughs> it's because you try to fucking burn him alive to sleep when he's a child. Yeah, that, that theory alone covers it. <laughs> <laughs> Cancel Sherlock Holmes. I got it. <laughs> But that night we see that Steve's trying to be a dad and he's just trying to hold this family together and he's really fucking powerless at any turn. And he finds Annie making a miniature of Charlie's death. And he's like, what if Peter fucking saw this? And she really doesn't give a shit what Peter thinks if he saw it because of its artistic value and its neutral viewpoint. Because, yeah, yeah, that's what you think about <laughs> Your son's probably traumatized over accidentally killing his baby sister, right? Yeah. And it's it it goes without saying, I don't know if you've mentioned it yet or not, but the whole thing with the miniatures in the in the plot of the film is this is what she does and she's getting ready for a gallery exhibit because there's a couple of phone calls that happen. Through, she's not just weird and this is what she does. This is what she right. does for work. It's actually a bit of both. I glossed over it because it's not necessarily relevant for the story other than the fact that, like you said, she does do the miniatures for work. But she is getting emails and phone calls like, where are you at on the miniatures? But we also see that making miniatures of her life is obviously a part of her coping mechanism. Uh, grieving or coping. Coping's better because even Grandma Ellen trying to breastfeed Charlie was a miniature. Yeah. Because she needed to cope with that, right? So this is some people draw. Josh goes and fucking jams out a tune, right? Yeah. Uh I sometimes do the tune. Sometimes I just kill people on video games, but like <laughs> people have to cope different ways. And hers happens to be making very intricate miniatures of her daughter's death scene. <laughs> All sorts of fucked up shit. But at this point, we're going to go right ahead and cue the awkward family dinner. It's basically just people eating and really noisy plate and chewing Foley work just to make it just fucking uncomfortable as all hell. And the awkward dinner ends with Annie exploding at the table and really showing her motherly love. And all I get back is that fucking face on your face. <laughs> but after Annie is done saying some fucked up shit to her son and saying it was all an accident on his end, but he still needs to take responsibility for it. Peter asks, what about her? Why did she make Charlie go to the party? Why did she force it when Charlie didn't want to go? How about them apples? <laughs> Really, it goes back to being pawns, not in control of your life, like the Heracles class, right? Yep. The next morning, we see Annie trying to cope with life and work on her project that's well overdue. And she has to go to an arts and crafts store for supplies. And she 
air quotation marks, randomly bumps into Joan, who tells her about how she just had a seance with a medium and got to talk to her grandson and how much better she feels after this. Annie is fucking skeptical as shit to the point that she's laughing at Joan, right? Yeah. But Joan has a good sales pitch, and she ends up taking Annie back to her apartment to prove to her that it's true. And this is just showing, okay, the, the flyer didn't work. We're going to send Joan in. We're going to send our fucking, our closer, right? So the closer came in. Boots on the fucking ground. <laughs> right. A keen eye here. <laughs> that is paranormal activity that Joe came from, right? Yes. Yeah. A keen eye here would notice that there are some chalkboards in the back of Joan's car. They are properly framed in and they're sitting right side up and just say chalkboard on the label so that you know she has fucking chalkboards in her car. <laughs> So Annie gets directions and follows Joan to her apartment. They get back to Joan's apartment and they try to contact her grandson. Air quotes again, Louie. I got my own thoughts on this in a minute. <laughs> and uh, at this point, I was pretty sure something was up with Joan. And then this scene happened and I knew something was up with Joan. Yeah. And uh, I don't even know if Joan has a grandson. What if Louie is Lucifer? What if she was performing a seance with Lucifer himself? Because once we get to the... The big reveal, Lucifer is involved. Yeah. Or or at least, you know, a, a Toby level demon, you know, there's something. Right, right. I just think it's a bit of a coincidence that the name is Louie, which could be short for Lucifer. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't think about that way, but it's definitely not things are not as they appear. It's definitely that. <laughs> <laughs> but basically in this scene, we see her communicate with Louie and she has Louie move a glass left or right while they're lightly touching it like a Ouija board, right? For yep. yes or no. And Annie's like, what the fuck? And then her hair blows up. And that's very paranormal activity. Like so the things are, it's like Toby blowing the, the, the air in her hair, right? Like, I, I don't I think it's paranormal activity three. It happens to little Katie, right? Yeah. But it, it reminded me of that scene. And she's really freaked out. And Joan breaks out a chalkboard. That was her grandson's favorite thing to play with. Or she just purchased it at Michael's for nine ninety five. <laughs> One of the two. Okay. Take that, Hobby Lobby. <laughs> oh, I could have gone with Hobby Lobby. There's a Michaels around the corner. That's the only reason why I did that. Oh, two, two middle-aged men just made those jokes. <laughs> I don't know about you, but before the pandemic, my wife would make regular trips to Hobby Lobby and buy mountains of art supplies because she likes to make shit. Ours was always Michaels first, and then uh, let's swing by Hobby Lobby while we're out. <laughs> it just depends whichever one's closer to where we're living. <laughs> Before I continue to dive into this movie, I just want to say, you know, obviously we just came back from a Disney trip and we like Disney in the house. And my wife is a stay at home mom, but she's used to having a baby at home. And then the kids, when they get out of school, well, they're all fucking downstairs with her while I'm working upstairs right now. And it's a lot to adjust to. And she needs some her time. So she ordered a bunch of Disney uh, jigsaw puzzles. (laughs) <laughs> and she's putting them together and she's going to paint and seal them and frame them. And they're going to be her quarantine collection. Sweet. You know, what's fucked up about you bringing that up is I was actually reading a thing the other day that there's been a massive uptick in puzzle sales due to the fucking virus. <laughs> Margie couldn't order any online because either everybody was out or their price gouged to five times their cost. However, Barnes and Noble locally had some. And you can order, and in the next 24 to 48 hours, if you pull up, you call ahead, and they'll drop it off in your trunk. Sweet. So she was able to get them that way. 
But where, where did I leave off? So basically, Louie's able to write I Love You Granny on, on his favorite chalkboard that was just purchased at the arts and crafts store. And Andy's like, fuck this. I got to roll. Ari Aster had his team figure out how to do a lot of practical effects they didn't know how to do. And some of them seemed simple, but they weren't. And this was a practical effect. He had a little magnet inserted in the chalk piece, and there was a piece of metal under the chalkboard. And they wrote, I love you, Granny, from the bottom. Yeah. But anyways, Annie wants to peace out, and Joan quickly hands her instructions in another language on how to do the ritual herself at home. And she says she needs something very personal of Charlie's to communicate with her, like this chalkboard. My ass. And Annie wants to know what the paper says. And Joan's like, oh, I don't know. Just read it. I draw the line at the Latin. (laughs) So now we see Annie trying to drive home. And it's a nice and calm, serene drive. Just kidding. We can't have that shit in an Ari Aster movie. Get the fuck out of here with that. Honestly, it's one of the best audio jump scares of all time. Yeah. It's not a cat randomly screaming. It's not out of place. Like a lot of jump scares, the reason why they scare you is it shouldn't happen. This cluck is something that is very prominent in this movie, almost like a character. And her hearing it was just so appropriate. She locks up the brakes, looks on the car. She doesn't see Charlie, but it's making her want to do the seance, right? Yep. That night, Annie can't sleep, and she wakes up and finds ants all over the bed. Then she sees a huge trail of the ants coming in from the window, walking over a road map. Are these supposed to be the ants from Charlie's head earlier, making it to her house? Is that why there's a road map there on the wall, just to kind of make you think about it? I don't know, but shit's getting dark. (laughs) But Annie follows a trail of ants through the house, and she finds them swarming all the fuck over Peter and his head, worse than the Charlie's decapitated head. And honestly, you can't tell if Peter's head's decapitated or not, because where the blanket stops. She opens her mouth like she's going to scream, but there isn't any sound. Just the score fucking elevating because it's just so it's a character in this movie by itself as well. And then we just see Peter wake up and ask, what are you doing? Are you sleepwalking again? Because, you know, she's already trying to burn him alive with paint thinner while she's sleepwalking. Right. And uh, at least that didn't happen this time. But Peter asks his mom why she's so scared of him. I never wanted to be your mother. She's fucking mother of the year. I swear. (laughs) The hits keep on coming, though. She says that she didn't want him. Her mother made her have a kid, and she purposely tried to miscarriage multiple times just to not have him, but nothing would work. And then they both just start screaming and yelling at each other, and Peter wants to know why she tried to kill him. And then they're both covered in paint thinner randomly, which she thought was sweat at first, beating off of Peter, but it's paint thinner. And then she lights the match. The end. Movie's over. Just kidding, but you could have actually probably ended it there. We're about an hour 20 in. That'd be a good horror movie. Uh-huh. No, people would have been really mad about it. <laughs> Just, honestly, at this point, Annie wakes up from a nightmare, and then we hear her in another room through the wall reciting a ritual in the other room in another language. She then wakes up Peter, apologizes to him for everything she's done recently, yelling at him at the dinner. She apologizes for trying to burn him alive. She apologizes for everything she's ever done because she loves him. And then she's like, come on, you got to see this shit, right? (laughs) (laughs) This whole scene that plays out, at least for the first half, so reminds me of Poltergeist, especially with the dad's name being Steven. (laughs) Yes. But basically, Annie tells Peter and Steve, who's now also woken up, that they can't change shit and to trust her, and they got to do what Joan says. Steve wants to know who the fuck Joan is, (laughs) because he doesn't know who she's talking about. He doesn't get a lot of dialogue in this movie, Gabriel Byrne, but he is. They're they're fucking almost all on point. 
Yeah. <laughs> Who the fuck is Joe? <laughs> but uh, Peter and Steve are like, what the fuck? And Andy lets them know that she thinks she's a medium now <laughs> and basically says, here, hold my beer, right? <laughs> she, she developed these skills rather quickly. Or did she? But Peter agrees to stay with her, right? Like, because Steve's like, we're, we're just going to go to bed. Peter, get out of this room because he's trying to protect the son. And Steve just wants to be there for his mom. She just apologized for everything. And what more does a boy want than his mother? <laughs> to, you know what I mean? To, like, forgive him and love him for something, right? Yeah. And uh, Steve says, fuck it, and let her rip. Annie wings the ritual. And Steve wants to know what fucking language is the piece of paper in. You draw the line at the Latin. <laughs> Annie does her thing, and Peter can hear some shit going on in the room, and then he feels the air flexing, is how he describes it. And then Charlie slides the glass across the table, and Peter starts to have a panic attack again, like how he did under the bleachers. And Steve basically tries to stop the seance, right? Annie just wants Charlie to draw. She's pissed at them fighting. Charlie, that is, and she fucking randomly breaks like some glass in the house and then lights the candle. That's the scene I was talking about earlier. And Steve's looking under the table for like the trick to just see you if know, she lit this candle and shit. He does not trust her. And then he hears Annie making this odd growling and breathing noise as he looks up at her. And then she starts talking like Charlie and freaking everyone the fuck out. And then Steve just goes and gets a glass of water and just fucking douses her with it in the face. <laughs> yeah, he's like, nope. <laughs> After this, we get an unimportant pan or fade through the house, other than the fact that we see Liftoach pandemonium on one of the walls. At this point in the movie, I'm just going to go ahead and call it the third act. But we fade from Peter sitting in his bed to Peter sitting in class, and he sees the weird blue light in the room and moves around and it goes to the cabinet next to him, and then he sees his own reflection smirking at him like a jackass right where the light stopped. <laughs> He freaks the fuck out and leaves class. I'm pretty sure the teacher in the whole class thought he had an insta shit the way he doved up and said, I got to roll. Yeah. He called his father and told him what he saw. And then Steve calls Annie, pissed the fuck off and tells her to fucking quit. And he has a son he has to protect and just hangs up on her. And she does not take that well. She's like, you don't hang up on me. <laughs> I protected my son. Yeah, she goes the fuck off. So Annie, like we said, just loses her shit. And then... Her customer that she's supposed to be making the miniature for calls, and she just doesn't give a shit and just wrecks her whole studio at this point. But we don't see her do it in the movie, okay? We just see the after effects. Steve and Peter come home, and they find her sitting in the wreck studio. But the key takeaway here is that Steve wants to know what the fucking terrible smell in the house is. But Steve's pissed at his wife, so, you know, he sleeps on the couch. Which I don't know why, because Annie's just going to sleep in the fucking treehouse anyways, right? That, that was the joke I made. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Annie can randomly hear scribbling in Charlie's room. So she goes in there and she sees that the book is being written in or drawn in and even turned in pages. But there's nobody there. Just like the Necronomicon. <laughs> we cut to Peter sleeping peacefully in his bed until he hears the cluck sound again. He wakes up, but this time he actually finds Charlie in his room. And then her head falls off, but then turns into a ball and bounces. What uh, the fuck? And just like the chair scare with him from earlier, this is done so perfectly to where you're like, oh, no, you're not getting me this time. I know it's her. And then by the time you commit, it's like, oh, it's a basketball. <laughs> or was it? I know. <laughs> but then he looks down the hall and he sees the, the family dog growling at him. And just in time to make you shit your pants, some hands come out from on the headboard of the bed and grab Peter. And then the door slams on the dog at this point. And you're like, what the fuck? 
We then see that Annie's just standing in the room and Peter wants to know what the fuck she's doing. He thinks she's sleepwalking again and trying to kill him again in her sleep. Somewhere in here, we cut back to the art book and we see that it's just pictures of Peter crying over and over again, but his eyes are crossed out. I'll get to the eyes later too. Annie grabs this book and takes it to the fireplace and tries to burn it to protect Peter. Cause at this point she's like, Peter's going to fucking die if I don't stop. Unfortunately, this catches her own arm on fire. Okay. She can't put the fire out on her arm. So then she pulls the book out and puts the book out and it puts the fire out on her. Right. It's like she's linked in some way. Yep. Peter leaves for class the next morning and he finds his grandmother's door open. And after he leaves, we see Annie sneak out to go to Jones. And I just want to point out that door is supposed to be locked and it's open and freaked him out. And there's another point way earlier in the movie. It might even be the open and scene. The camera follows Peter as he walks out of the kitchen into that hallway and he takes a left and the camera just stays staring at a door for no reason and then follows him left. And it might be when they come back from the funeral. And if you're paying attention, that's grandma's room. Yep. And it's just because that door is open and closed, even though it's supposed to be locked all the time. But anyways, Annie arrives at Joan's apartment and Joan doesn't answer. But there are three important takeaways here. One, the camera pulls back from Joan's apartment door into her apartment and we see lots of candles. We see altars. We see the symbol again. And then we see pics of Peter and we see toys that we know Charlie made earlier sitting on her table with animal heads looking up at it. Okay. Yep. Shit just got real. Yep. (laughs) It's just now getting real for you. (laughs) Number two, there's randomly a camera across the hall recording her. That's not really mentioned, but later you just kind of feel like it's the cult was monitoring her in some way, right? Oh, yeah. It does take take a chance to show that. Yeah. I mean, it focuses on it. You're supposed to know the camera's there. And three, Annie looks at Joan's mat again and then has an epiphany and runs off. Meanwhile, if Peter was not having a weird enough time, he's trying to eat his lunch at school by himself at the table because now he's like the loner kid. And we see Joan across the street yelling, Peter, I expel you. And she's yelling the shit from across the street. I love this. He's like looking behind him like me. (laughs) (laughs) There's also some Latin or some other bullshit being said at this point. And nobody else seems to notice what's going on or hear any of this crazy shit. Back at the house, Annie goes through her mom's stuff and finds lots of embroidered welcome mats that say, like, Peter and Steve and Charlie and Annie and all that shit on there. And it's a very similar pattern on these. And there's also some odd books in the box. One of the books has the symbol on it, on the cover, and it's in a strange language. And the other one is entitled Invocations, okay? So Annie opens that one to a page that's marked, and it describes how to call the demon King Paimon and a highlighted part on that page says when successfully invoked King Paimon will possess the most vulnerable host. Only when the ritual is complete, will King Paimon be locked into his ordained host. Once locked in a new ritual is required to unlock the possession. So that's pretty fucking specific there. (laughs) We also see an underlined spot in the book that says King Paimon is a male, thus covetous, a male human body. We also see that riches are rewarded to the conjurer. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) (laughs) If this shit is not getting weird enough, Annie goes through a photo album and sees pictures of her mom that she does not recognize with all these people she doesn't know, as well as several pictures with Joan going decades back. Yep. Like a lot of them. We also see a ritual and we see the symbol on necklaces on people in the ritual. And we also see a picture of Annie's family in the photo album. And then a picture of a ritual being performed 
with a cult around that same photo. Back at school, we see Peter walk down the hall and we see the light again. Okay, and it goes towards the classroom. We see Steve is at work emailing someone about Annie's state while he receives an email from the cemetery showing that the grave has been robbed and that her body is missing. Ellen, that is. Ah, so that's what the bill thing was about. (laughs) Back at the house, Annie goes to put her mother's box of belongings in the attic just to get them out of sight, right? And she's greeted by hundreds of flies as she drops the attic door open. Very Amityville horror-like. Oh, yeah. Oh, and the decapitated corpse for her mother's in the attic. How could I forget? (laughs) The corpse has probably been up there for a while, though. And that might have been the footsteps we heard when they came back from the funeral. The cult might have already been putting the body in there. Mm. Or they could have just been hiding in the attic or the room at this point in time. But they were definitely in the house. And we can see the symbol is on the wall in the attic again. And there is a mannequin in the corner, like just very barely showing through in the darkness. And it definitely catches your eye if you're paying attention. And you think it's something and you're like, oh, it's just a mannequin. Never mind. I'm good. (laughs) more on that later it cuts between this and peter in class and he starts hearing the clucking then his face is frozen like he just had a fucking stroke and his hand is thrown up in the air and he does this weird position with his fingers that i'll i'll hit later but they're bent oddly and his eyes are bloodshot and then he slams his fucking head into the desk hard as shit and then stands up bleeding and screaming and he just performed so well in this and A note on his performance, he actually offered to slam his face into a real desk and shatter his own nose for the scene. Really? To make it better. And Ari's like, not only would I not want to do that to you, I can't legally (laughs) do that to you. So they gave him a padded desk, and apparently he had dislocated his jaw previously. And, you know, doing something, fucking kids, you know how it is. And uh, the top half of the desk was padded and the, the bottom wasn't. And at some point he dislocated his jaw and he slammed his head into it. I don't know if that's the scene that made it or, you know, if they cut it, but you okay. know, I hate to hang on it, but like that, the dinner table scene and this scene, like that dude is just, he sells it, man. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. He says first time he's gone method, <laughs> like as, as much as he could, like he just felt like it needed to be done. And I would say his screaming is on par, if not better sometimes. No, I'm not going to say better, but he's on par with Tony Collette. Like in this movie, he can hold his own. He just doesn't get to convey it as much. I hate to say this because I did watch it on the DVD, but didn't uh, didn't Ari Aster refuse to didn't he make Ari Aster not call him by his own name, only the character name until they were done filming? He went that method with it. I believe so. I believe so. Yeah. So kudos to him. Normally, when you hear about that shit, it's like Jared Leto and shit. And it's like really fucked up shit. But this 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 kid was great. But if the movie wasn't getting crazy enough in this third act, this is the part henceforth where the shit really hits the fan. Okay. (laughs) Steve has to pick up Peter from school who is knocked out and has a broken nose that's bandaged. And he finally has a breakdown on the way home. Annie helps Steve carry Peter in to the bed. And Annie tells him about the body. Steve, that is. And basically he looks at her like, I'm sick of your fucking shit and your hallucinations (laughs) and blah, blah, blah. And he reluctantly opens the attic. And I expected there to be nothing up there the first time I saw this. And he's immediately swarmed by flies. And he finds out that his wife is not crazy about the body, at least. (laughs) And he explains Joan, the seance, the symbol she's seeing everywhere, everything. Steve thinks she's crazy. And he thinks she actually dug up the grave of her mother herself and brought the body and put it in the attic. Yep. 
Annie thinks that she accidentally summoned something evil in the house and it's coming for Peter. And she asks Steve to help her destroy the book to save Peter. She's like, if we destroy this, it'll save it. You can think I'm fucking crazy, but just do this one thing for me. It's not going to hurt anybody. All it can do is do nothing to save Peter. She talks Steve into tossing the book into the fireplace and he does it and he bursts into flames and dies. I don't know why she thought this would work out. It caught her ass on fire, but maybe she thought it was like linked to her, right? Like yeah. she couldn't do it. Yeah, she totally thought it was gonna gonna take her out and it would all be over. And I I, I do want to. I'm sorry, I'm interrupting you here on a couple of these parts, but at this part of the movie, the wife and I, especially because of what I read before the movie came out, thought she was going through a psychological break. The son was going through a psychological break, too, because of all this shit. And that was the whole point of the movie. And this was going to culminate in it all being waking up in a padded room, fucking slumber party massacre two style and shit. And when this guy became a crispy critter, it was like all bets are off. (laughs) (laughs) I was 50 50 on this in the theaters on if it was going to be that she was just crazy in the end. And this might have been one of the few scenarios where I wouldn't have been angry. Had that happened, because it still would have been a, then it really would have been a movie about grieving and suffering. Yeah. Right? Like, what did it drive this person to? And it would have been a fucking amazing work of art. But we got that amazing work of art and a fucking horror movie out of it. Yeah. Yeah. Because where it turns from here on, you've been given all the hints, but I had no idea where we were fixing to go, man. (laughs) (laughs) Let's just, let's just let her rip, get through this, then we can stop hinting, right? I feel really bad for anybody that's listening to this and hadn't seen the movie. You just got to see it. It's still fucked up. Oh, yeah. They're, they're, they're fucked, man. This is anyways. But the important part, as we see Steve's body engulfed in flames and die, is that we see the blue light fly through the room and travel straight into Annie while she's screaming. And if I remember correctly, it's one of those silent screams again. But then she just stops and stares at the camera like the fuck. Like she doesn't care anymore. Yep. It's now nighttime all of a sudden, and Peter awakens in his bed in a lot of pain, and he sees that the heater's on in the treehouse. This is the point where some people notice that Annie is in the corner in the bedroom up by the ceiling, just back there like Spider-Man. I saw it in the movie theaters, freaked me the fuck out, and apparently almost no one else in the theater saw it. (laughs) <laughs> until she starts swimming through the air in a minute. And then you heard everybody scream. Meanwhile, I was already fucking traumatized because it is creepy. And you're like, why is Annie up there? Yeah. But Annie is up on the ceiling. This is not natural, right? Ninja. But yeah, basically Peter looks around the room and his mom swims through the air behind him, which sounds ridiculous, but it's not when you see it. And like people were just screaming and freaking out at that scene, but I couldn't even scream because I was traumatized by being up in the corner. At this point, we're walking into the final scene of the movie, and this is very quick. And I am going to try to explain this the best I can. Okay. <laughs> Peter walks down the hallway, and there are flies in the hall. Okay. If you notice, the attic door's closed. He hears the piano in the living room flip over and get smashed in, okay? In the other room. Ah, I I was, I didn't catch that when it, when you see it in a minute, I didn't realize, okay. But uh, Peter goes to investigate this piano sound and he sees Ellen's bedroom doors open and he hastily closes it and runs because he's scared of it. He heads down the stairs into like the, the entryway area and he sees the destroyed piano and he finds his father's smoldering corpse on the floor. And this is when you, you, I mean, if you, when you saw her in the ceiling, if you didn't realize that, okay, this is a horror movie for real, Peter's seen the dead body. So the dad's definitely dead, right? Yep. 
And when he approaches the corpse, the camera shows him, but behind him and over his shoulder as well. And you can clearly see his mom up high on the ceiling here, right? And it's not obscured in darkness like the previous scene. And just to make sure you know she's there, the camera actually shifts focus. And he goes out of focus, even though he's, you know, center frame. And she's the one in focus. You know she's up there, right? Yeah. Then... He hears wood creak and turns his head, and there is a naked, smiling man standing in one of the doorways looking at him. It is the fucking pederast from the funeral to begin. Okay. <laughs> He's so creepy looking. And this is like, I was like, what the fuck? What is all that in theaters? He then hears a bang behind him, and he looks up in the corner where his mother was supposed to be, because we saw her, but she's not there. Now, I'd probably explain this poorly. When he walks in the room and he sees his father's corpse initially, there's a very dark corner that you're waiting on something to happen. And the camera pans around because nothing happens. And his mom's up on the ceiling, right? Yeah. So when the camera pans around to show his mom on the ceiling where he can see it, she's not there. And then he turns back to his father and it's still a dark corner. And you don't think anything's going to happen. And then she runs out of the fucking dark corner. It's shit inducing speeds. <laughs> Peter books it back to the hallway. We saw him in earlier, but the attic's open and the ladder's down. It was not earlier. He doesn't think anything of it. And he runs straight up. And then the attic supernaturally closes. Nobody grabs it. It just shuts and folds up the ladder and it's gone. Okay. It cuts to Peter and he latches the son of a bitch shut in the attic. And then we see Annie outside in the hallway, but she's floating on the ceiling, holding on to the attic frame, <laughs> slamming her head on the door at a rapid pace. Like a fucking woodpecker. <laughs> Peter's obviously concerned. Mommy? He then realized that there are flies everywhere in this attic and there are candles lit everywhere. And he sees the spot where Ellen's body was earlier. And you can see like the decay marks of a body shape, but her body's not there. Yeah. And the camera pans around to where the mannequin was earlier. And there's actually two naked people standing four feet behind him that he never fucking notices. Okay. <laughs> it's so fucking creepy. <laughs> and um, he thinks he's dreaming at this point and wants to wake up. He then hears flesh being cut and he looks up to the ceiling in the attic where he sees his own mother floating, holding piano wire like a garrote, sawing it back and forth to chop off her own head. <sighs> And she's like perfectly comatose, like just mechanically fucking doing it, man. It's so good. You know that everything's fine meme with the dog and like everything on fire? Yes. <laughs> it's the real life version of that. <laughs> yes. It's very fucked up to see, though. And I do want to say that they put a prosthetic neck on Tony Collette with the blood in it and just gave her a piano wire and let her go to town. Okay. So she has like a fake padded neck on that she saw it into. That way she could do her face with the with the pulling reaction and everything perfectly. Peter hears a sound behind him, though, before his mom manages to cut her own head off. And he sees three naked people staring at him. And I don't think it's the same naked people from earlier. Maybe it was. <laughs> but basically, at this point, he says, fuck this game over. And he dives out a window. OK, <laughs> he's, he's quitting life. And he slams in the ground in the garden. He's knocked unconscious. We then hear the flesh carving sound stop because it's still going the whole time. And then we just hear something solid hit the floor. OK. The light then flies into Peter's body and he wakes up and notices that his mother's corpse is flying through the air into the treehouse, motionless. He stands up, not oh. giving a fuck, looks at the camera and makes the cluck sound. 
He approaches the treehouse. By the way, if you look in the background, the family dog is dead in the yard. So at this point, he walks past this. They even killed the fucking dog. Man. Okay. And there are naked people everywhere. And I missed it, but earlier in the movie, there's a clip where you see a pullout shot of the house on the hill where it almost looks like a miniature at night. And the light flashes really quick, and then it cuts to a movie scene, and you don't really get a good scene of the light on. Okay. There are naked people surrounding the house when the light when the sun comes up, like really quickly, uh, like just to let you know it's all coming in, right? A lot of symbolism here. A lot of wieners. There's a lot of wieners in this movie. <laughs> we get more wieners in the next movie. <laughs> oh yeah, but uh, Peter walks to the treehouse, climbs the ladder, and we find more naked people. <laughs> they are all bowing to him as he climbs in, and there's some very surreal music playing as he climbs in and it's like a lot happier music than you've heard for the rest of the movie yeah it's very uplifting as he climbs in and looks up he sees a statue of pam on with charlie's decapitated head on it and the hand is doing the position just like he did right when he went to that stroke-like state and both ellen and annie's headless corpses are in the room bowing down to the statue and one of the cult members if you pay attention is his buddy with the man bun that he was smoking pot with under the bleachers. Oh, I did not catch that. Yeah. Not his, like, close buddy, but his other friend that he smoked the pot with. The one that was sitting in front of him under the bleachers? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, and Joan's there. Duh. Right? <laughs> and we see a picture of Ellen that says Queen Lee over it. So I'm assuming Ellen was head of the cult. Died, and Joan took over. Yeah. I've not said this before, but Peter is not disturbed by any of this. He is... Perfectly fine with everything he's seeing. And then Joan puts a crown on his head and she lets him know that he's okay, but she calls him Charlie, if you notice. Yep. And she lets him know that he's King Payamon and he's now in his proper host. And he has left the improper female body and he's now where he belongs. And they want honor, health, and all familiars they are bound to. Hail Payman! The end, not fucking with you this time. What the fuck? <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I got a couple notes here, and then we'll we'll finish on this film. So basically, what we're seeing here in this movie, because honestly, not a lot of people catch shit on this movie in the first, second, or third time, but Ellen was the head of this cult. She's trying to bring King Payamon to Earth, which is a, if you do research, he's a real demon, okay? He is one of the lords of hell, and he's supposed to be Lucifer's favorite, okay? The decapitation stuff's kind of added, but there's a lot of literature on this guy from old Latin books. Aleister Crowley has books on him. Like, he is one of the lords of hell that is supposed to be able to be summoned, okay? The symbol is identical, only in the movie it's three sets of the symbol. It's actually four. Okay. In all occult books and whatnot. And I don't know if they did that because of, like, a plagiarism thing or because it kind of looks like it has a 666 in it if you do three of them. Yeah. Or fear of accidentally summoning King Payamon. That would be mine. Ari Aster and his team had to have done lots of research into ancient rituals, invocations, and books on demons. Because pretty much everything was spot on. Except for the symbol being identical, missing a piece, which we just covered. And the decapitations were added. The decapitations, you can go back with when she did the bird head with the crown, the drawings with the decapitated right. head and the crown, like all this was leading up to what you ended up seeing with the, the effigy in there. But I mean, it's Ari Aster's version of Payamon, but Payamon is 
real as far as existing outside of this movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Josh and I believe in demons and whatnot, but I know not everybody does. But <laughs> this character was not made up by Ari Aster. He just kind of, he might have put his own spin on it, but that's about it. Yeah. But basically, Ellen was supposed to have the baby, had Peter kept him away so they couldn't use him as a host. Charlie was born. Charlie became the host. According to Ari Aster, a lot of people argue and say Charlie was not possessed the whole time. Ari Aster said she was possessed from birth. Yeah, I was going to say, I call bullshit on, on that. She had to have been possessed, and the clucking moved. And, and the only problem I have with that, I agree that Charlie was possessed the whole time, but I feel like he could leave her body and come back in because, like, the time where she's in her room and you see the light come through the room into the window, it's like she wasn't possessed for a second. Yes, but yeah, Charlie's fucking possessed. Whoever says she's not, uh, no. <laughs> I, I do feel like maybe he could leave the body, though, because you see the blue light other places when things are happening. But then again, you see the blue light going to Peter's body at the end, and then you see Annie's decapitated body floating through the air. So the cultists have to have some form of necromancy, which yes. I'm going to get into in a second. I do want to say that originally in the movie, after they crowned Peter's Payamon, he gouged out his own fucking eyes in the movie. Like all, like, I don't know if I said it or not, but most of the pictures you saw of Peter, not just drawn, there were also photographs of him in the rituals. The eyes are poked out. Yeah. And those stayed in the movie, but they actually had Peter gouge out his fucking eyes in the movie when he got crowned, and the test audiences did not like it. Hmm. So he reshot it without him gouging out his eyes. And that is not a deleted scene in the film. There's not a director's cut of this movie, but there are nine deleted scenes. Most of them are, it's about 30 minutes worth of scenes, but it, most of it is family dialogue, right? Okay. But Steve was given more of a role consoling the family. He wasn't just powerless. Like he was actually in there a lot and he's trying to get any help regularly from a different doctor. That's not him. And that's who you see him writing the email to in that one scene. And there's a scene of him talking to Peter about what happened. He makes Peter explain it. He talks to Peter about his guilt and all of this, which, you know, that kind of bothered me that you didn't see that in the movie. And Peter has like a breakdown about it and crying and his mom can hear it through the walls. And she just starts doing this like, I wish I was dead thing. And it kind of like, you know, shows the guilt a little bit more. OK. And there's also this is really important. There's, I wish they had kept this like a lot of the dialogue could have gone. This scene is important. There's like a 30 second scene and it's pre party. It, it's Charlie and Peter walking up to the doors to go into the party at the house. And Charlie's like, I want to go. I don't want to go in here, Peter. I don't want to go. And he's like, look. It would take me an hour to get you home. You're coming into this party with me, right? Uh, so that's why he feels so guilty about it. Is she wanted to go and he made her. But it's also, that goes back and forth between the possession can leave Trolley's body theory that I have. It's like Trolley knew she was going to die if she went to that house. Yeah. So maybe she's still in there a little bit, you know? Yeah, I think, I think maybe uh, she quote unquote had the gift, let's say. And was the shining. Yeah. Yeah. And was, <laughs> she was sensitive, not knowing what it was, but sensitive enough to know, hence the drawings, the particular artwork and everything before she actually got fully possessed. Right. Like she just didn't know where it was coming from. It's not like she was a soulless husk with King Payamon living there. It was a child with a soul that also had King Payamon living in there. It's yeah. kind of the way I took it. But the words on the wall, I want to get into that really quickly. The words on the wall in any of the rituals and the spell books that you see is a mixture of Hebrew and Enochian from what I saw. Um, so this is very general, but Satoni basically means bring back the dead or necromancy. Okay. Zazas means to summon a demon. Yeah, we got that. <laughs> yep. And Liftoch Pandemonium 
means open up chaos or open up hell. And that, that and if you think about when the words happened in the movie, it was like that the next act happened. Okay, there were markers. I didn't read anything that said that, but I feel like, yeah. <laughs> like it was the general vibe and gist of the movie at that point. I saw the scribbling on the wall a couple of times, then everybody sees it when mom is painting it in the miniature, but I couldn't tell what any of the words were. I could tell the words on the real walls. I couldn't on the, the miniature, but it looked like she was just painting what she saw on the wall earlier. Yeah. I have to say, of course, you talked this movie up without telling me about it, just that I needed to see it. And yeah, I figured it would destroy it if I, if I tried to explain well, it. What I read about it, I ha- had to have read shit before it came out, because what I was reading was that it's a movie about grief. It is a, a family dynamic movie. And I'm like, oh, it's going to be one of those psychological mind fuck where at the end it was all in her head and i was a first pleasantly surprised when that part of the movie when i expected it to come that's not what happened and then it went so crazy it's like at the point where you realize that's not what's happening that's when the movie goes balls out and that was so much fun (laughs) um it's a slow burn, which I fucking hate, but this shows how to do it. The, the sound design in this movie is what made it okay. Fucking, as far as moving through slow stuff without it feeling like it was dragging, the, uh, the amount of tension. Like I said, as soon as it does that cut to daylight and Charlie's head on the ground or at the roadside covered in ants, I was like, I... I will go on whatever ride you want me to go on for the rest of this movie. I've, I've, <laughs> I'm picking up what you're putting down. Really, though, these are a lot of things that I, I seem to recall you saying about Flanagan as well. <laughs> I was literally I was literally just fixing to say it again. That's why in my notes I had putting down that Mike Flanagan said I'm reinventing horror and Ari Aster goes, hold my beer. And that's really what I feel <laughs> like. Like he's taking that whole idea to the nth degree. Now, in, in Midsummer, it's a different way, but it is really neat that he understands horror and he's taking at least so far and I haven't watched the shorts, but you know, I'm assuming it's ingrained in there too of taking this simple little thing and packaging a giant fucking world around it that pulls you in so many directions just to tell the simplest of tales. And I really feel like him making every character have a backstory and making like the house and the audio be a character in itself is part of what shapes all that. Yeah, it it's, Pleasantly surprised. I'm glad as shit that I knew nothing about it, read no reviews. What I never even saw the fucking trailer unless it was on TV. Honestly, it's like I said earlier, it's one of the few movies that scared the shit out of me. It's less scary the second time, but definitely has disturbing scenes. But uh, so did it scare you? Yes. Okay. So our our house, our bedrooms upstairs. And that night, because we, we stayed up and watched it. And I was the last one downstairs. So I'm like prepacking my lunch for work, turning off all the lights, setting the alarm. And by the time I had everything off, I literally jumped the baby gate. It's for the cat. Actually, it's for the dog, not the baby. But uh, because we don't have a baby yet. But anyways, uh, I literally jumped that motherfucker and ran upstairs because I did not want to be in the dark. (laughs) And I could make a joke about how I was scared I was going to see a crusty white dude's wang. But it wasn't that. I felt that uneasy with all the lights off and just the blue glow of the hall light. And I ran my ass upstairs. I'll admit it. <laughs> I think it's like a really, really positive thing about the movie. And it wasn't just a horror movie. There's a very, very great story to be told there, carried by fantastic actors. And then just a year later, 
we get to see what he does again with 2019's Midsummer. So this was, of course, written and directed by Ari Aster. We've got uh, Florence Pugh as Danny, who he saw her in Lady Macbeth and had to have her. And she's more recently been in like Little Women. I think she got nominated for that, right? Yeah, yeah, all she's, kinds of stuff. She's I haven't a big seen. upcoming actress, right? Yeah. <laughs> We've got uh, Jack Rayner as Christian, and he was in Transformers: Age of Extinction and a bunch of other stuff. I haven't seen. That's what I know that asshole's face from. It was driving <laughs> me crazy, and I forgot to look it up. Hey, I finally got one. <laughs> <laughs> Only because I was busy. <laughs> I say that asshole, everybody was perfectly cast in this movie. <laughs> oh, yeah. We've got Wilhelm Blogren. I, I, I hope that's how you pronounce his name. As And here's where I get fucked up. I've heard it pronounced Pell. I've heard it pronounced Pelly. And I've heard it pronounced Pella by different people in the movie and making the movie. <laughs> I'm going to stick with Pella. <laughs> I actually think it's Pell. Is the more common one I heard. And I think his friends call him Pelly, like calling Bill Billy. It's kind of how I took it. Hey, so maybe I'll call him Pelly. I don't know. You've, you've all been warned. <laughs> <laughs> We've got William Jackson Harper as Josh. I knew I knew him from something. And when I looked him up, I recognized him from The Good Place. Which is really fucked up because his character in The Good Place and his character in this aren't even in the same universe. No, they're not. Um... We've got Will, uh, is it Poulter or is he French? Is it, it's got to be Poulter. Poulter. As far as I know, yeah. Okay. As Mark, and I recognize him from fucking Bandersnatch. Have you ever seen him in anything else? No. (laughs) When you have some free time and you you got like an hour and a half and you want to watch a movie just to laugh and turn it all off, watch We're the Millers. Okay. You're going to have to watch it without your wife probably because Emma Roberts is in it. Yeah, that's why we haven't watched it. It is so funny, and that's like one of my non-horror Star Wars Marvel movies that I have here for when like there's family in town, like my brother-in-laws and stuff. I'm like, you guys want to drink a beer and watch a movie? This one's hilarious, and Will Poulter is hilarious in that movie. <laughs> so the first thing I got to say is I was a good boy this time and made it a point to steer away from any like behind-the-scenes and interviews for your movie and just stuck with uh, Midsummer or... Mitsumar, as Ari pronounces it for some reason. Um, Ooh. Yeah, fancy, right? And Maybe that's like the Norwegian pronunciation of it versus the American. It probably is, because we're assholes. Um, but watching him do the, this interview, I forget what it's called. You'll, you can find it on YouTube. It's just a, it's like Lincoln Center or something like that. The Q&A at the end, this guy reminds me of, of Kevin Smith in some degrees. Okay. Because like somebody asked him about his short films and he's like, well, the first short film I made was a fucking half hour long. So maybe I don't know what the fuck a short film is. <laughs> he has to be talking about the Johnsons movie. That was actually his last short film, I thought. Because he has another one called like Munchausen and it's about a mom who doesn't want her son to go away to college. So she fucking poisons him so he'll be sick. So he can't go. You know, Munchausen by proxy, yeah. right? But it's an adult, not a child. I think she ends up killing him, if I remember correctly. All this shit seems normal until it's not. Yeah. Well, first or last, I, I just wanted to make a point there that, like, his his quips and his down-to-earthness, that's that's just who it reminded me of. Probably just okay. because of it being a Q&A session and all the evening with Kevin Smith's um, before he became full of himself. 
Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we've talked about like, oh, and this comes out, it made all this money. So then they got another project. That's not how this went down. Now, this is I'm quoting Ari Aster here. So if the date is wrong, correct me if you if you've got it or no. So he said Hereditary was released on June 8th and pre-production for Midsummer started June 9th because on a reading of the script for Hereditary, a Swedish production company asked him to do a folk horror story. So when he was asked that, he was like, well, what am I going to write about? Because I'm going to write a character piece. And he was going through this nasty fucking breakup. And that's what he wrote about. And that's what this whole movie is about. I didn't know that, but I also purposely did not do extra research because it's your movie and I don't want to talk over you. However, when David and I watched the movie and we're trying to figure out what in the fuck we had just watched at the end, <laughs> I did do a little research that night. That's been some months ago. That was, that was separate from this. I didn't come across that. If he wrote 10 screenplays before he started making hereditary and he hopes to make them all films, was this not one of those 10 then? This was not one of them. This one was actually, he said that he got the offer from the production company and said, I have to personalize this. Fuck it. I'm going to turn it into a relationship piece. And that's how I got to get this toxic relationship out of my system. Nice. Also a horror film. Some people just call it a black comedy in some countries. Yep. And Oh, that, that's what's interesting is you can view it from so many different angles. Like when we get to a couple of parts that shouldn't have made me laugh, made me laugh my ass off. So I could totally <laughs> see that before I continue to just blatantly interrupt you. I just want to say one thing that I came back to Jordan Peele on watching this movie and the fact yeah. that it's in such bright sunlight for almost the entire film just makes it more fucked up. Like, yeah. I, just, I just want to say there is a couple of dark scenes at night in this movie even in the opening and they are fucked up in their own right. But the fact that you were in beautiful Sweden, I know it wasn't filmed in Sweden. I'll let you get there. But the <laughs> fact that it's supposed to be Sweden and it, it honestly, the scenery is beautiful and the sun is so bright and there's just all this shit happening. <laughs> and, and it's like, I don't know. It's hereditary all over again. It's just fucking destroying my soul bit by bit. Yeah. So explain to me how he destroyed my soul. Okay. So it was shot in Hungary. We'll go ahead and get that out of the way. <laughs> okay. I knew it was somewhere. I just couldn't remember where. But uh, you're right, man, because it's it's all so bright and so pleasant and everybody's getting along. And that's what makes it so awkward, like a fart in church. It's like, <laughs> it, <laughs> <What the> fuck? <laughs> that's all I got. So there is a rabbit hole. I know, right? Of <laughs> people on the Internet tearing this movie apart fucking really a style and nobody will go and watch the interviews with Ari Aster where he flat out says it's about a breakup and he mostly identifies with the Danny character. So I'm not going to go down that wormhole. I could, I could actually see that now that you say that honestly, when I saw this movie, it disturbed me greatly. And when I say hereditary scared me, hereditary scared me as one of the Best horror films I've ever seen in my life, and I will regularly rewatch re that. Midsummer's not on my rewatch list. Like it disturbed no. me, and I'm like, this movie was really good, and it's a fucking work of art. And I've seen it. Like I, <laughs> I don't want to watch it again, and not because it was bad. Like I said, it's just like it. It really is kind of disturbing. I don't know. It's fascinating when you put the relationship spin on it because I just didn't think of it that way. And it's it's obvious now that you say it. <laughs> And that and you just summed up the whole movie because this movie tries to beat you over the head with everything that's going to happen. But you don't know yet, including <laughs> the movie opening with this huge painting that shows the seasons, 
the upcoming festival. Oh, and every main plot point of the movie. But you don't know that yet. <laughs> right. And, and, and really funny story on this. David and I seeing Hereditary, we watched this movie together, but on home video, right? And we were, we were all set with the pause button. We were going to look at any background image we could because it was going to solve the whole movie. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure we hit play open beers and missed the tapestry. Oh, really? Never saw it. it. Took us four hours to watch the movie because every time we saw a painting, we we paused it and they make sense. Every painting makes sense when you finish the movie. Missed the tapestry. Went to watch this three days ago for the podcast. Hit play, saw the tapestry and went, well, there's the whole movie. <laughs> How the fuck did I miss that? Never saw it the first time. Yeah, and I'm not going to do a breakdown of it. You can go on YouTube. There's several. But the important other paintings throughout the movie I will bring up. Um, there's a very good chance that I could break my foreshadowing record on this, but we'll see. So after we see this, we cut to Danny calling home because her sister's crazy, as shown to us in her IM messages culminating in, I can't anymore. Everything's black. Mom and dad are coming too. Goodbye. Okay. <laughs> You really harnessed your AOL voice on that one. <laughs> I know, right? So in her call to the house, she gets the machine and we get a shot in the parents' bedroom at the house and the machine picking up and her saying, hey, I was just calling to check in on y'all, blah, 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 blah. And the camera pans over mom and dad asleep in bed. And over on the far nightstand, there's a picture of Danny with a crown of flowers sitting on top of the picture frame. Um, foreshadowing. Anyway, <laughs> I can't do it for you. I'm sorry. I know, right? So not knowing what else to do, she calls Christian. And I'm just going to say this up front because there's going to be too many times that I can say this shows this. She's codependent as fuck and he is emotionally retarded. And I'm allowed to say this because I went through therapy for several years for codependency issues. And I, to this day have been called by my wife, emotionally retarded. I don't like dealing with things. I don't like letting things in and being in a codependent relationship is fucked up because you're not in love. You just find something broken and you think you can fix it or you're in something broken and you don't know how to escape it. And that's their relationship to a T. You couldn't hit the nail on the head any harder. <laughs> I will say, though, that when you were in those states, you write some fantastic fucking lyrics and songs. And remember, Ari Aster wrote this movie about his <laughs> exactly. relationship. So pain makes great art. <laughs> let's let's really dive into what's happening in this scene, though. Like, I, I can't wait to get there. Well, the gist of it is because I didn't want to drag this out too much. He's with the boys, as I'm going to call it, that we're going to see her as roommates later on. And they're in because the, he says they, they, they just smoked some hash and they were going out for pizza. And we end up cutting to them and. They're like, dude, you should break up with her. You're always talking about how you don't want to be with her. And then I think it's Pelly that's like, yeah, just think about all the, the Swedish girls you could be impregnating this summer. And <laughs> yeah. uh, the waitress walks away. And I think it's Marcus like, yeah, you could be impregnating her. And it's just everyone can see that this isn't healthy for him or they just want him to get some. Well, we cut back to Danny and she gets a call from an unknown number. And we get this slow, unsettling tour through the family home, starting with these firefighters coming in through the garage. The cars are running. We then see that there's hoses attached to the tailpipes. They follow the hoses up into the house. We've got them one under the door in mom and dad's room with the door sealed up. And then sis went 
full hardcore with this with the hose in her mouth and taped to her fucking face. And as a hereditary fan watching this, this is this is less than 10 minutes in the movie. This might be five minutes in the movie, right? Um, actually, we're fixing to get the title card, which I made it a point to put in here that we're over 12 minutes in at this point. <laughs> wow. It, it really goes fast. It does. Though. And you're like, oh, my God, he's doing it again. But he started out so dark. So fast, so hard, and then the darkness just fucking vanishes for the next hour and a half. Yep. And uh, the camera goes up over dead sis, and it's snowing out in the dark out the window, and we see the trees and shit, and then everything changes. We abruptly cut to Danny just wailing in Christian's lap, and he seems like he doesn't know what to do, like with a crying child. And honestly, he has that, I don't want to say douchebag O'Neill at this point. He will harness that later. Oh, yeah. Right now, he's got that. Okay, I care about this girl, but I didn't want to be in a relationship with her anymore. But now she's got this shit going on and I can't leave her. So I'm stuck here. So what do I do face like you could just see it all in the face. Yep. And her wailing. Oh, my God. It's 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 fantastic. (laughs) Yeah. She sounds like she's about to throw up. She's given putting that much into it. But uh, we cut to some time later with uh, (laughs) Christian like. Hey, uh, uh, I'm going to head to that party for 45 minutes. Like he's so detached (laughs) and to come out of her funk. She's like, well, I'll come with you. And they get to the party and she quickly finds out that the boys are going to, uh, on a trip to Housingland in Sweden, which is Pelly's quote unquote home. And that Christian was going to be going too, and not a word of this had been shared with her. So they go back home and an argument ensues. And I love this because for the first half of it, as the tensions building in the argument, you see Danny in frame next to a mirror. And then Christian's out of frame in the mirror like he's isolated, like he's that separated. And there's mirrors a lot in this movie because there's a lot of self-reflecting happening. It's very artsy without fucking bashing you in the head with the fucking palette. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I hate artsy shit. And this this one I can stomach. I was concerned about you covering this film and not hereditary, actually. And I was like, you know what? I bet he's going to find some deep shit in there. I didn't even realize the codependency thing, making it a perfect match. (laughs) That's the thing, man. I finished the film and I was like, it's not for me, but as a piece of art, I can sure as fuck appreciate it for what it was. It's good for what it was. Then I read or saw an interview of what the movie was about. And I was like, oh, this guy's a fucking genius. (laughs) I like Hereditary a lot more than this movie, but I will not say this is a worse movie than Hereditary. No, no. <laughs> They're like on par. Yeah. It's just different. <laughs> They're both brilliant, but this one this one isn't isn't my jam enough for for rewatching. But uh in the very next scene, we get the mirror trick used again over at the boys' apartment because they're all sitting in the living room with this big mirror above them and Christian's standing at the back of the kitchen like, hey, Danny's coming over. You know, I kind of told her about the Sweden thing, figured she could come. And then when she comes in, she's talking from the other room in the mirror like she's she's isolated from the group of friends <laughs> like they don't right. even, they don't even commingle. I love the way he does it. I invited her, but she's not actually going to do it. You know, it's kind of humor. I will say we we paused the movie to look at the painting and we read every book on the table and the bookshelf's title. <laughs> there's lots of Nazi books. OK, yeah. The best thing in here is that there's a picture of the scarecrow from The Wizard of Oz above the refrigerator. Scarecrows are going to come up later on. Did not catch that, actually. Well, there's another scene in her apartment where there's actually a little stuffed scarecrow on the shelf. 
Ooh, there's there's definitely a painting in her room that has something to do with a bear. Yes. <laughs> and a woman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, the bear and the little girl with the crown. So everybody kind of leaves the room, leaving just Danny and Pelly in there. And Pelly's being like super nice to her. And he's right. like, you know, oh, it's my homeland. And I'm not going to try to do the accent. And, uh, you know, it's like, the, and this is, this is some pictures of it. And I'm like, this is the festival. And it's like, oh, what's that? And he's like, that's last year's May Queen. And it's the girl all in white with the flowery crown thing. So off to Sweden we go. There's a quick cut of her crying, going into the bathroom, which turns into the bathroom and the airplane. It's whatever. It's really cut well, though. Don't whatever that. Uh, I really like how it goes from her moaning in the bathroom to the, or, or, or how it cuts from her in the apartment to the, the moaning in the uh, the fucking airplane bathroom. I thought it was really cool. But it does the camera sweeping over the top of the fake wall, and uh, I eh. It was like the miniature thing to me. It was kind of like it was one of his uh, auteur sticks. Yes, that I will give you, and there are shots like that in this. So, off to Sweden they go, and there's this really neat upside-down shot of the car going, and even when they drive under the banner to to the place, it's upside-down and backwards and shit. Almost like a reflection. Um, Yeah, or that everything you think you know has been turned upside-down. We're going to have to agree to agree with each other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like what you did there. So, um, as they pull up what's going to be like a pre-introduction before they get to the actual town, Pelly introduces the group to his brother, Ingmar, and some other quote-unquote outsiders, Simon and Connie from London. Which Ingmar brought with him, right? Yes. Those were like Ingmar's college buddies, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, we'll get, we'll get into that later. So they all do shrooms. <laughs> That's a lot of this movie, actually. So first, Danny's reluctant. And finally gives in to do it. And Ingmar's like, oh, it's okay. I put some in tea. And she's like, oh, okay. And I just want to point out as someone who has done shrooms, um, if you just eat like, I don't know, an eighth versus putting that in tea, tea, the way your body absorbs it is way more powerful. Okay. So, I had no clue. Yeah. So she, she just fucked herself and didn't even know. And <laughs> Mark starts to freak out a little. I'm not Okay. Oh, fuck. It's a new person. What? I don't want new people right now. I'm just going to lay down, okay? Yeah, do that. Everybody else lay down. And I, I laughed so hard at this part because he acts exactly how I acted back when I used to do shrooms and acid. He is, that is not, I don't, I wasn't the guy that flipped out, but I was the guy that was just unsettled enough that I needed someone to hold my <laughs> I hand. I can see that. I can see that. I was, I was never around you in that state, but I can see that. I do want to say in your research, did you find out if they were actually doing drugs while shooting any scenes of the movie? No, I did not hear that brought up. I didn't either, but. I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to really address it with Christian at the end of the film, but his pupils, <laughs> he looks <laughs> fucked up and they're like, here, here's some ecstasy. Eat this. <laughs> I don't know. I was just curious because they, I mean, they, they have the look. Yeah. Well, on, on the shrooms thing, as Danny starts to look up the tree and Pelly's talking in the background, it's like nature finds its own way to balance. Look, the tree even breathes. The crawling, wobbling mm -hmm, shit mm -hmm. visuals in the movie, dead nuts on for shrooms. I give this guy so much props for actually doing this shit, the, what I've seen in, in real life. So I don't know if the guy's done shrooms or just did a lot of research, but I give him major props for not making it stupid. And not only does Danny see the breathing tree, but she looks down and she sees grass growing out of her hand. Foreshadowing. Um, 
<laughs> now, Danny's being pretty chill about the whole thing until through conversation, someone brings up the word family and she snaps and her cheese starts to slide off her cracker. And she thinks the group in the circle next to her are laughing at her. She starts, she starts spiraling, man. She needs somebody to hold her hand. And uh, Ingmar tries to comfort her and she ends up, you know, so fuck all y'all. She runs off to this outhouse. Looks like a nice outhouse. And uh, I did not catch this on watch. I caught really? this on review later. No, I saw it, but I didn't realize what it was. Oh, no, no. I caught it. Shit my pants. And this was also after I spent <laughs> a minute looking at the tree line, looking for people standing in between the trees the whole time. Oh, uh, no naked people in the trees. I, I, I really feel like... Being so in hereditary ruined the first watch of this movie for me because I was looking for so much shit, which was there, but you don't realize it's there until you've seen it once. And yeah. then I was just looking for people standing everywhere that they just weren't going to be until this outhouse scene. <laughs> <laughs> and what Jesse is referring to is she sees a reflection in the mirror of somebody standing behind her. And what I didn't realize is it's her fucking sister with the taped on hose on her mouth. <laughs> And her fucking dead eyes and everything. Uh It's disturbing as shit. So logically, she runs off into the woods. And she's awoken the next day because they say, you know, we found you about six hours ago. (laughs) But she does say it's like, like tomorrow. And I think it's Mark is like, well, according to yesterday, it's tomorrow or something (laughs) like that. (laughs) And so the group is going to officially head off to uh, Harga. Harga. It, It almost sounds like. Holga, the way it's pronounced sometimes in the movie, but I'm just going to say Harga because I'm an American. Oh my God. I thought you were going to say Hogwarts. <laughs> That's what it sounded like you were trying to say. I was like, what the fuck? I'm not that bad at language. So they enter through this big wooden sun and the whole town is revealed with all these people in white robes and these fucking uh, Tim Burton looking buildings in the background. But uh, Mark really nails the vibe. So we're stopping in Waco before going to Pell's Village? Somewhere in here is when he starts bitching about ticks and Lyme disease being no joke, right? Yeah, and that it's when they're walking through the woods and it's because uh, Ari Aster has a horrible fear of bugs in general and specifically ticks. <laughs> if you look at Mark throughout the rest of the movie, he has his pants He's itching tucked way, Well, he also has his pants way tucked into his socks so that they can't get up under his pants legs. I did not pay attention to that. <laughs> he totally has his socks over his pants the whole time so that he can't get ticks up his pants leg. There's an interview with Ari Aster where he says he would wear extra long socks pulled up over his pants so he wouldn't get ticks while they were filming. <laughs> I didn't know that because, like I said, I, I avoided this shit for the episode. But I did notice on second viewing that because I knew that Ari Aster was afraid of ticks after I saw it the first time. So on second viewing, I noticed that the, the pants tucked into the socks the whole time. And I'm like, that's a nice fucking touch right there. Like, it's just oh. subtle. You got to be looking for it. But it, it's pretty I- funny. I did not catch it, man. I was looking at all the pretty flowers. Oh, my God. The flowers, the suns, the white outfits. I I do want to say, I love a line in the movie where Mark said something. It was before this about all the beautiful women and why does Sweden have such beautiful women, which I've heard many a men ask throughout my lifetime. And Josh responds with, oh, well, the Vikings took all the beautiful women from the other countries and brought them back. And I'm like, yes, that makes a lot of sense (laughs) when you think about it. It does. And uh, it's and I'm going to go ahead and bring this up now. Um, What's going to play out in this movie? What he researched was a mixture of Swedish culture and history, Norse mythology and 
then sprinkled his own shit on top of it. Um, so there is some shit that's legit. There's some shit that's kind of legit and some shit that's totally made up. And some of the shit is so close to being legit historically that in Sweden, they consider this movie a comedy. Yeah. Cause it, it's basically like mirroring their own history in like a, to them exaggerated way. But I mean, I've heard fucked up shit about all nations, pagan rituals. <laughs> yeah. And that, yeah, I was watching an interview with some people and they're like, what do you, what do you think of the validity of the historical accuracy here? And it's like, um, we're more likely to get drunk than we are to do acid and <laughs> we don't burn anyone in bear suits. <laughs> I almost wonder if the shrooms was more to keep everyone else out of touch. And you're probably, I, I really need to leave you alone and let you get on with this movie, but it's just, this. <laughs> I, we're here to talk about the director. You know, the director is the character of this podcast, not the movies. Right. And just yeah. like his touch on things. I, I just, I really like, the way he approaches things, there is almost no subtitles in this movie when they're speaking Swedish. And I know Josh is going to say that somewhere down the road. Uh huh. There's some, but there's some left out on purpose. And if you notice most of the time when you see subtitles, it's because the Americans or the Brits aren't in the area. Okay. So it's, so we know what's Uh going on the rest of the time it's left out so that you feel like an outsider that doesn't know what the fuck is happening. (laughs) And that goes back to Tony Collette, not knowing Gabriel Byrne. And Alex Wolf and Millie Shapiro beforehand. And to his credit, this was actually taken a step further because we've all seen this in other movies where they don't subtitle, but then you'll, you'll actually get the subtitle track. They didn't do that on this movie. So as they're there seeing everyone, everyone starts to surround this sun stage to see what the hell Siv is talking about. And this is one of those scenes where she's talking in Swedish and she's like, oh, yeah, the American swine. I got to talk where you can hear, too. She doesn't doesn't say that, but uh, she kind of (laughs) does. Yeah. So she hands these torches to an old woman and an old man, and she screams spirits back to the dead. We then quickly see Maya, who stares down Christian, and she's running in this group with this other kids right afterwards and over where Christian's sitting. Simon and Connie come sitting down and Simon's like, hey, what are the kids playing? And they're told skin the fool like, oh, sounds like fun. And then the group comes by and Maya playfully kicks Christian as they go by. And then Christian's like, well, uh, can anyone just join in? And of course, Pelly gives him a perfect answer. Oh, you're an American. Just jam yourself in there. That's fucking, that's perfect. As an American, I can agree with that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> However, seeing this movie twice, I still, and, and, and knowing that Maya kicked Christian, I, I never actually noticed that he was like ready to get up in there right then. None of the extra scenes have happened yet in this cut. I'm going to cover all those at the end. Yeah, yeah, I understand. But- but there is there's more that goes on between them than we're led mm-hmm. to believe in the theatrical cut. But now with it being because Josh gets up and goes to and I think Mark's done wondered off. Mark wonders off a lot. OK, that's just what he does in this movie. I'm pretty sure he's vaping pot like he's got to be possibly. Right. But now that they're kind of alone, Pelly gives Danny a drawing that he did of her wearing a flowery crown. And he does it for all of his friends for their birthdays, for their birthday. Yeah, because it was brought up earlier that during near the time of the festival would be her 25th birthday. I'm pretty sure it's 25th. So then we kind of have, this is like our half-assed exposition couple of scenes here real quick. We've got uh, the outsiders uh, walking with Pelly and Ingmar. 
as they explained the uh, the studying of runes and the fact that Ingmar tried to date Connie. That's if you really think about that by the end of this movie, it was it was plan A. <laughs> plan A failed, but plan yeah. B worked. <laughs> as they're walking, there's this like mustard colored triangle building way off in the distance, but it's framed up that it's got to be important. And they ask what it is, and they're told it's a temple and it's off limits. But they end up all of a sudden coming into frame in this beautiful green grass is a bear in a cage. <laughs> and they ask, they ask, what's with the bear? And Ingmar explains in great detail. It's a bear. Honestly, for comedic value, that's probably my favorite funny line in the movie. Because he's actually, this building's for this. This flag's for this. This color's for this. This painting's for this. What's that? Oh, it's a bear. <laughs> and and that's actually the only thing that he ex- he didn't explain that also needed to be the only thing to be explained. Yes. And then just as that leaves frame, we see the fucking love spell tapestry. Yes. And that's real easy to kind of follow, even though it, it, it pants by kind of slow. And me and Ginger are both like, ew, ew, I don't want to see this scene. I don't want to see this scene. <laughs> It took me so long to see any scene with a painting because of pausing it. Wait till they get into their hostel or whatever. Oh, my God. (laughs) I tried to see everything in that room. Hey, check this out. Meanwhile, Pelly takes the others to their sleeping quarters. Here we go. (laughs) And it's covered in art and runes. (laughs) Meanwhile, Jesse spends an hour of his life trying to decipher the pictures and then realizes, I bet this doesn't make sense till I finish the movie. Yeah, I will bring up three of them okay. later in the movie. And Mark says there's a lot of dicks on the wall, and he's not wrong. <laughs> so through conversation, because it's like we're sleeping here with the, he refers to the children. And he's like, well, at least until age 18. And he starts explaining that they view life like they do the seasons. And that zero to 18 is uh, spring. 18 to 36 is summer, which they're right in the middle of, or at least Danny is. Um, 36 to 54 is fall, and that's when they go off to do work. And then 54 to 72 is like winter. It's reaching the end of the life. And Danny's like, well, what happens at 72? And she has no fucking clue, neither does the viewer, how honest Pelly is with his response, because he just does his thumb with the knife across the neck thing. And everybody giggles like, oh, that's funny. <laughs> I, I do want to point out that Christian and Josh, at least, are anthropology majors. So they know a decent amount what's going on. Josh more than Christian. And I'm yes. assuming they know Mark from the same area of study. But maybe he's the fuck off. <laughs> He's got to be. He's the yes. He's the he, he could have a different. He could have a different degree. But like, and even Pelly, I think he's supposed to be an anthropology guy, right? But like, yeah. he's studying America, right? Like on on his yeah. on his trip. So once again, Danny's the outsider here. Is what I was trying to get at. Long story short, because like to them, even if they don't know exactly what's going on, they understand it a bit, right? Like the the, the cultures and the nuances. And to Danny, this is all like, oh, what the fuck's going on here? You know, it's that John Travolta from Pulp Fiction. <laughs> You're just all about memes tonight. <laughs> I mean, everything gets used for the coronavirus right now, okay? <laughs> that and fucking Joe Exotic. There's just memes everywhere, okay? <laughs> yeah. As far as the eye can see, this is not what our, our forefathers had in mind. 
But uh, <laughs> sorry, I've derailed us enough. Josh, go on, please. But you're right. Josh is the only one that's actually studying. Christian copies off of him poorly, and I'm going to suspect that Mark copies off of Christian even more poorly. Oh, that's so bad. <laughs> so that's how you end up as an intern for life that brings coffee, guys. <laughs> as they go to leave the building, Christian suddenly has a piece of cake and a candle that we don't know where he got it from. And he's trying to sing happy birthday to Danny and the fucking candle won't light, which is a great metaphor for their entire relationship. And she notices that I do want to say, I don't know where the cake comes from. It really feels like he magically pulled it out of his ass, but Pelly pulls him into a corner briefly before that. And you can hear him mumbling something and Danny sees it. And to me as the viewer, he's like, dude, it's your fucking girlfriend's birthday and you forgot. So that's the only reason why it knows he knows it's the birthday and she's on to that. You can only see shoulders up though. So he possibly Pelly had the cake for Christian for Danny and, yeah. and hand it off. But the only reason why he even knows it's the birthday is because it's Pelly and Danny's onto it. I will 100% give you that, especially since Pelly represents the outsider of the relationship that pulled them apart. So yeah, 100%. That's perfect for his character. He's so nice while being the bad guy. He's that friend. He's that platonic friend where that phrase comes from, where you tell your girlfriend, yeah, pl- platonic means dick you ain't had yet. <laughs> I'm not even talking about from this weird relationship shit. I'm just talking about from a cult that's trying to fucking murder your entire family. He's oh, so nice. that too. So as the group goes to bed, Pelly says that tomorrow they're going to start the first day of their festivities with an Atastupa. And Josh is like taken aback by it. And he's like, like a real one? <laughs> and Pelly's like, yeah. And, and fucking Christian's like trying to get service on his phone so he can Google what an Atastupa is. <laughs> is it, I remember hearing this shit in class while sleeping one time. And uh, Josh refuses to tell him. And he's like, there's, he's got this look on his face. Like, there's no way that's what's happening tomorrow. I, I really like when, when Christian bitches about not having service and he looks back at Josh and Josh gives him. It, it, it's the closest to a good place face that he makes like to that character. He just looks at him like, mm, I don't know. You know what I mean? And it's like, you're in some shit tomorrow. <laughs> so the next day, the old couple that we saw with the torches earlier, <laughs> sit down as the guest of honor at this large rune shaped table. I'm going to get into the runes at the end. So many runes in this film that we don't know what they say. We'll probably summon something by mentioning them. I might have actually raised the dead earlier when we were talking about hereditary. I don't know. But during the dinner, the two stand up and they start to whisper and chant at one another. And then they finally drink the poison. No, not quite yet. But that's what I thought was happening. (laughs) Honestly, I thought the same thing. Instead, they're whisked away. Now they're in blue. Everyone else is white and they're whisked away in their blue chairs with people wearing blue clothing. Abrupt cut, which Ari Aster is great at. Yep. To a dude with a huge fucking hammer. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, I'm just wanting to play Monster Hunter all of a sudden. I don't know why. (laughs) I want to point out, is the old guy the neighbor from Home Alone or does he just look like him? Have you done any research? Our listeners want to know. All right. This is going to make you feel old, but that movie was made 40 fucking years ago. (laughs) Home Alone was not made 40 years ago because we're 38 and we were alive when it was made enough to see it. Sorry. 30 years ago. (laughs) 
Still, my point being that guy looked like he was about to kill over at Home Alone. There's no way he'd still look the same. <laughs> Listeners, wait it out. I'm Googling it real Are quick. Are you fucking serious? <laughs> Josh is right. It is not the same guy. But God damn, they look a lot alike. Well, you think all old white people look the same? <laughs> no, but these two guys definitely look the same, right? Yes, I will give you that. They do okay. look the same. Have you always wanted to push the old guy from Home Alone off a cliff or bash his head in with a hammer? Is that where we're going? He definitely <laughs> comes off as a serial killer in Home Alone until he's not. That snow shovel. That's where he crossed the line there and he became the hero. Anyway. <laughs> I'm so sorry, guys. Isolation does shit to you. So the whole town is gathered at the base of this stark white cliff. And the old ones are being brought to the top, being carried in their little chairs. And it's very fucking obvious what's about to happen because there's this outcrop from the top of the cliff and like this stone right under it down below and shit. So Siv starts reading from this book and we don't know what she's saying. And Josh is like really interested. He's like, hey, what's that? And like, we'll get back to that later. Meanwhile, the old ones are having their hands cut, just like what Danny saw painted on the wall above her her bed. Now she woke up in the middle of the night and looked at it, but you can see the cl- the cliffs above and the two having their hands cut and you don't really know what's going on. But if you refer back to the painting in the opening credits, you know exactly what's going on. <laughs> uh, well, not the opening credits, but you know what I mean? At any rate, we see the woman go over to one of the rune stones and wipe blood over two runes. Now I read a thing that the one rune means rebirth and the other one means death. Okay. And that makes sense. What Ari Aster said was that he researched a lot of legit runes and then they built their own alphabet. Oh, yeah. I've also read conflicting stuff about this. But if you watch every character in the movie that's once they're wearing white has runes on them. And if you look for correlations throughout the movie, you can kind of form your own opinion. When the sex scene happens, the doors to that room are both the R, quote unquote, looking rune that supposedly means rebirth. But then the runes on Christian's garb in that scene, one means death and one means something else. So after she wipes the blood on the stone, she approaches the cliffside, gives this like sun salutation, and then calmly falls to her death face first on the stone below. And out of everybody, Simon's the one that immediately flips the fuck out. Everybody else, as far as the outsiders go, are in shock. They can't believe what they've seen. And before anybody has time to form an opinion, (laughs) the fucking man comes up to the edge of the cliff. And apparently this guy sucks at life. And I have to say this. So the music is going and everything. And then there's the nice wide shot from the side. And when he jumps off, it goes silent. And just the little of him hitting the ground sounds like something out of a cheesy video game. But it's also properly used at the same time. It's amazing. It is. And the, the cinematography on everybody's face while while it's happening, because honestly, as a normal human who's never seen this film, when the woman jumps off, you're like, what the fuck? And your mind can't conceive it getting worse. And no. then the guy and- does it and misses the rock. And they're like, oh, that's what worse looks like. <laughs> exactly. Because he... First fail. Let's go through his list of fails here. Yes. He goes, he goes feet first. (laughs) Then he barely clips the rock. (laughs) So you get a nice 
visceral shot of him screaming in agony, his legs all fucked up, and everyone in the group starts chanting and wailing like they feel his pain until someone comes over with that big fucking hammer. Now we know what they're for. Bashing guys' heads in like cantaloupes. Exactly. I never (laughs) wanted to know how bologna was made, and then I saw this film. I hate eyeballs in my bologna. (laughs) And this seems to, like, calm Danny. Like, she just, she leveled up. She reached some kind of acceptance. Really, I think she has a different level of going numb than the rest of them. What everybody needs to keep in mind is how broken she is. She's not just a chick there with the other people. She just lost her whole fucking family. And the only person she's left to love is emotionally retarded and a horrible match. And doesn't even know when it's her fucking birthday. Any douchebag O'Neill should at least know the birthday. She's in a position to where she can be easily manipulated because she has nothing left. So as we get like the nice dramatic shot of her eyes and and everything kind of calming down, Simon's in the background just screaming like, that's fucked. You're fucked. We're all fucked. What the fuck is this? (laughs) And Siv is trying to calm him down and explains their custom to him. What you just saw is a long, long, long observed custom. Custom? It's fucked. Those two hoodlums has just reached the end of their horga life cycle. But after this, Danny starts to come out of the shock and it all kind of rushes in and she starts to have a little little mini breakdown. Meanwhile, Christian is telling Josh that he plans to totally rip off his idea for his (laughs) thesis. I can't say the word thesis right now. (laughs) And this is when he becomes douchebag O'Neill of the film. Yes. And there was a much deeper subplot with the thesis thing and a lot of cut shit. I'm glad they cut it because I'm okay with it just being another thing that shows that Christian can't control himself in any way. He can't yeah. think for himself. He can't decide anything. The, I think the point got across in the in the theatrical cut. I've seen the director's cut and I didn't even catch what you're hinting at. To me, it was just it was more like the mirror thing. He just fucking flipped sides out of nowhere. <laughs> and I was okay with that. Because really, his character changes greatly from this point in the film. Even the way he talks to Danny, he's like, I'm so prestigious and astute now and blah, 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 and my thesis. Like, he's like that from the, here on out in the movie. Well, not, not only that, but once the elders give him the green light, that's when he really goes overboard with, oh, I am here to learn. <laughs> Point taken, though, is Christian's character, they could have stuck a different actor in here. Like, this is a credit to his acting, I feel like. Yes. No, I I totally get what you're saying. He's the emotionally insensitive boyfriend that's here for the ride. And then he becomes the I'm here to backstab and fuck all of you until I'm on top. And his character does not have that at the beginning of the film. No, he becomes self-righteous as fuck. Ari Aster says that he sees a lot of himself in Danny, but admits to being a lot like Christian's character as well. I think that's just the humility of being a human and you always take blame in all directions, right? Possibly, but Pelly has to be the outside manipulator. Yeah. We got really deep into this movie, guys. I'm so sorry. So while while the confrontation is happening between Christian and Josh, you can clearly see it's perfectly framed. The painting above Christian's bed is the sex ritual. Just want to point that out there. It's a good, it's daytime. It's really easy to see it there. Like most of the movie. 
So it's quickly after this that Pelly tells Josh that he'll have to ask the elders about doing the thesis. Oh, and by the way, Christian asked me about that, too. And Josh is like, what the fuck, man? <laughs> Christian didn't just ask. He asked first. Right? Yes. Because he's like, Christian asked me this earlier. It's like, motherfucker, you got approval from, you're trying to get approval from the elders, and then you're going to tell me that you're stealing my shit. But he's, he's a piece of shit. It, it's setting us up to, to hate him, but we don't know how far that's fixing to go. <laughs> are you almost saying that they are pawns in a machine that have no control over their life? No, it's a festival. <laughs> I'm talking about our, our primary guest here. So is this going to be an ongoing theme we see from him when he makes films? I fucking hope so. In all seriousness. If it's a new way every time, it's a new movie every time the way he does it. Yes. I hate my easiest comparison with the artsy side of it is Flanagan. And this guy makes Flanagan look like a kindergartner in some respects. <laughs> I'm still more of a Flanagan fan than an Ari Aster fan, but I feel like they do a lot of the same stuff. And I feel like when Ari does it, it's all of the spectrum of the arts. And when Mike does it, it's just horror to subconsciously fucking destroy your mind for the the week. Right? Yes. And I watch the horror movies for that part. (laughs) Yes. I want to not be able to sleep for three days. Hang on. I can only backpedal so fast. Um, <laughs> I, I, I was a little harsh in the way I said that, but Flanagan gets the win in the horror column. But the way you put it is right. Ari sees the big fucking picture in a new, new package. It's new, okay. new right now. It may wear off, but it's the closest I can compare it to. I will say out of all the directors we've covered when we hit a director episode, they're not usually comparable. And I will say in this case that you can compare these two, Mike and Ari, in certain ways. Yeah. But they still have their completely own spin on it. And I think as horror fans, we are very fortunate to have two directors that can do this shit at the same time so that we can get regular films. Oh, hell yeah. But uh, Danny's coming to the conclusion that she's just going to leave. And... Pelly, you know, the friend, I say that with air quotes, convinces her to stay. And he starts throwing some heavy shit on her like, no. And he tried to bring this up at the apartment that, you know, he understands her loss because he lost his parents, too, when he was very young in a fire, not in the ceremony to all the people on the Internet who thinks that what it is, the that ceremony happens every 90 fucking years. There's no way his parents died in that fire. But the, the whole thing is, is that he. He finds a way to connect with her and he convinces her to stay, at least for now. Master fucking manipulator. Just like every asshole who's ever stolen a man or woman from you in your life. Yeah, because he follows it up with this could be your real family. And he even talks shit about Christian as well, because he's like, does he feel like home? Like, oh, oh, you snake. You're a fucking snake, dude. And it's weird because he's not doing it in a way where he's trying to get in her pants. It's like he's trying to free her. He's still the hero at the same time. I'm going to harken back to the opening painting. Pelly's up in the tree, first watching them and then leading them playing a flute. He's the Pied Piper. Ooh, I really like that analogy. Exactly. So once that fucking painting spells out the whole thing. Oh, it does. (laughs) Anyways, like I said, breakdown. I won't go to it. And we have another jarring quick cut from them sitting there all somber to a close up of dudes bashed in face as the bodies are being put on the fire to burn. Almost like cutting a Charlie's head on the side of the road. 
Exactly. I'm okay with all tours having sticks. <laughs> <laughs> so that night, Danny has a nightmare about her family, the old ones, and being left behind by her friends. And like she breathes the exhaust from the car, like like her, her sister and parents must have, well, mainly her sister. Um, I have some scientific issues with that, but we'll save that for another day. Um, I do want to point out that she has regularly at this point been borrowing sleeping pills. From Josh. From Josh. Yeah. Yeah. Which I have problems with the, the term borrowing. <laughs> you can't return it. But but she's been taking sleeping pills from Josh. But so that is the exact verbiage. <laughs> yes, yes. But she is in a deep sleep on prescription medication for this. Yes. Um, the next day, we can see that the ashes are being placed next to this big dead tree and that there's a lot of ashes around this tree. Nobody says shit, but it's pretty obvious that this tree is important and this is where they normally put their ashes. <laughs> so we see that Pelly tells Josh and Christian that the thesis idea has been approved and they just can't use names, location, anything like that. And that, uh, Maya seems to have taken a liking to Christian. And also, by the way, she's old enough to bone now. And it, th there's a name for it. Starts with a B. I forget. I should have wrote it down. I'm being a smart ass about it. It very much matches the, the name of a piece of furniture I bought at Ikea one time. <laughs> oh, the Blurschnoff. Exactly. <laughs> to us in America, this is a bit odd, but apparently the age of consent over there is 15. But yeah, that's that she's 15. It's okay. She can now bear a child and she has her sights set on you. Meanwhile, Mark pisses on the ancestors in the background. <laughs> oh my God. This guy, he's obviously put in for comic relief. And when you see the director's cut, it's way more obvious. But yeah. uh, he doesn't give a fuck. He doesn't understand. And he's vaping the whole time. He's, like, you're, he's a walking stereotype, really. It's like, it's. It's a tree. It's dead. What does it care? It's the tree of our ancestors. It's like, yeah, but they're fucking dead ancestors and it's a dead tree. I'm surprised he didn't have his dick in his hand peeing. This is one of the few times you get subtitles, by the way, and they call this disgusting dick. I just want yes. to point that out. Put your disgusting dick away. And, I mean, this guy is moaning and crying as well as Tony Collette and Hereditary and Florence Pugh at the beginning of the film, right? Like, he, this guy's upset. But what he's doing to the tree, and he's just like vaping, like, what, dog? <laughs> you know, this is the asshole that was uh, on the news on spring break <laughs> during the yes. pandemic. Yes. Um, the pissed off guy's name is Ulf, by the way, because he's going to play a couple of key roles coming up. Yeah, I have a theory about somewhere else where Ulf pops up in the film. Oh, I, I got that in here. I okay. bet I know what you're talking about. Meanwhile, because there's a lot of jumping around here to keep up with a lot of little intricate stories throughout the group. We cut across town, camp, whatever you want to call it. It's not a very big town. No. <laughs> Connie's grabbing her bags and she's going to leave and she immediately gets stopped. And cause she's asking where Simon is like, Oh, Simon has already been taken to the train station and they're going to come back and get you next. There's only room for one on the truck. And she's like, well, I could have, he wouldn't have done this. I could have sat in his lap. We don't break traffic laws. <laughs> <laughs> So that lets us know that Simon is now missing. Missing in this movie's dead, in case you're wondering. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> like bad dead. So then Danny, we see her walk out of, because this is shot from outside of where they're sleeping. And after she storms off, Danny walks out from inside. So she knows what just happened. And she goes to tell Christian about this. But he's too busy learning that uh, incest is taboo and <laughs> that the, the group will bring in outsiders for making babies. Isn't that funny? And it should be 100% obvious at this point, as far as Maya goes. <laughs> Meanwhile, Danny is invited to help make hair pies. Well, Maya's making a hair pie. <laughs> Definitely. Oh, it's like your worst case Waffle House scenario. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All while Josh, since the elders have approved, is finally being shown the book. And we learned that it's the Ruby Radar. And as it's being explained to them, you know, this is their holy book. And it's basically an ever-evolving collection of interpretations by the elders based on drawings from inbred mongoloids like Reuben. Yeah. yeah. That sounds insensitive, but I'm being straight up serious. <laughs> that is how it's described. And I'm pretty sure it's probably something you shouldn't piss on. That too. <laughs> and uh, he asks if he can take pictures of it. And he's told, not verbatim, but basically, fuck no. <laughs> the face the guy makes says fuck no more than any fucking no I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, it's like he just asks, it's like, it's okay to piss on that tree out there, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, something I've glossed over here. This is a nine-day festival. <laughs> And as we're going through this, we're we start to hit day whatever yada yada of the festival. He purposely makes sure you don't know how many days has happened. For the record, Ari. Yeah. So we're not supposed to base it on how many days and nights we've seen. You mainly see days. That's what's supposed to be confusing. Mainly, but you get more nights in the missing scenes. Correct. So the point being, there are several lunches, dinners, blah, blah, blah. So it's not, it sounds like I'm rushing through. Oh, and they eat again. Oh, and they eat again. No, this is going on over days. <laughs> and it's shot that way for the most part. It's dialogue, a feast, dialogue, a feast. Don't forget cliff jumping and hammers. <laughs> I try. I trust someone it won't go away. Oh, and children being thrown into rivers, but that was cut out. <laughs> Honestly, out of all the cut scenes of the entire director's cut. I hope we get to that at the end. I wish they would have kept that one. I like the idea of the scene. Watching the way it plays out is so clunky. That was a rumbling and not my stomach. What is Mother Earth hungry for now? Shake and eat me. I I don't. I know that's not exactly how it goes, but I don't. <laughs> I don't like it. It is, though. It is. But it doesn't <laughs> seem out of place when I saw it. <laughs> Does it seem out of place now? <laughs> In a vacuum, yes. But I feel I feel like if it would have cut to it in the middle of the movie, one, we would have got a night scene. Two, we would have seen another fucked up ritual that is beyond fucked up to an outsider. Three, we would have saw Danny's humanity more. And four, it makes the fate of another character make more sense than the last scene of the movie. The one in the wheelbarrow? The one that was obviously drowned? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Her body's soggy and everything. Well, and she's wearing the tree get up too. So at the next dinner, everyone is drinking something that looks like OJ, but uh, Christian has a Bloody Mary. <laughs> Actually, he's got a Bloody Maya. <laughs> oh my God, Josh. That is so bad. But I just want to say the amount of people that didn't notice his cocktail was a different color 
blows my mind. Okay, so you missed out on the tapestries and the <laughs> rituals being pretty much spelled out for you. Okay, okay, I can accept that. You could have got a text on your phone. Wait, wait, you're missing one. And Maya making a pie by herself that she's very proud of that she sets away from the other pies. At that point, you're still not screaming, by the way, my menstrual fluid is in your juice. Okay. That's, not, that's not spelled out with the pie exactly yet. It's not, but it was on the damn tapestry. Exactly. You primarily had to catch that off the tapestry. Even if you miss that, the amount of people on the internet that will argue with you that his drink is a different color blows my mind. Or that you're not reading into it blows my mind. They think it's the same color as the other ones? They just say people are reading into it. I saw that a lot. I mean, I saw it both ways. I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, the whole world's a bunch of flat earthers. I'm just saying, like, there are plenty of people that say you are reaching for it if you think that, like, it's that's going on. And then you have to point out the tapestry, and it's, it's a lot of work to convince people for something that's obviously got blood in it. Well, for anyone who missed the tapestry, Christian pulls a hair out of his mouth on his first bite of the pie. Oh, there's a pube in there. We have to have it. Mark's there. He's like, dude, I think that's a fucking pube <laughs> or something along those lines. No, that's, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> and this is also Mark then looks away at Ulf, who's sitting across the other table, just like cocked, <laughs> jacked, ready to beat the show. He's like, hey, you think he's going to kill me? <laughs> yes. And Maya is basically fucking Christian with her eyeballs during all this. And yes. Danny catches it. The worst one she doesn't catch because she's all fucked up in the May Queen at that point. But a chick eyes Mark and actually takes Mark away from the dinner. And you know he's fucking dead at that point. Pied Piper. Doo, 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 doo. He's fucking gone. <laughs> so that night. See, we have another night. There's several nights. Josh sneaks off to take pictures of the book, just like he was told not to. And Mark comes in. But he looks a little off, along with his pants, which I did not catch on first watch. What? Didn't you didn't notice the fucking dick hanging the whole time? It's Leatherface with a loose dick. It's a dark scene, man, and I'm not a meat gazer, all right? <laughs> Apparently, we need to fix the gamma on your television, because you're missing a lot of creepy scenes in the dark here. Hey, you know that calibration DVD I'm so proud of? <laughs> the one that doesn't work, apparently? Uh, it's still still in that shrink wrap. <laughs> Honestly, though, I caught the dick before I caught that it was Mark. I was like, why is there a dude walking in with his dick out? Why does he have to have naked people in the dark all the time? And then it's like, ooh, that's like fucking Leatherface wearing a mask right there. What's happening? And then, bam, the hammer comes in. Yes, yeah, so Josh confronts Mark and he's like, dude, why are you just standing there with the door open? And wham, the hammer comes in. And then Mark, quote unquote, leans over Josh while he's twitching in the floor. And what I thought on first watch was it was Ruben wearing Mark's face because you start hearing the. <laughs> but Ruben is in a bed in the corner of that fucking room and you can see him in the background. I like to think it's Ulf wearing the Mark suit. And the, the guy out of frame that hits him with the hammer, you can actually see him as the camera spins by real fast. And I had to pause it. Whoever, it's a guy with long hair. So they, they obviously did play Skin the Fool. So we get to come back to that. So <laughs> the next day, nobody really seems to care that Josh and Mark are missing. What they care about is that the Ruby Radar is missing. 
And of course they're blaming Josh and or Mark, like, you know, this guy wanted to study it. This guy pissed on our ancestors. You know, there's, there's fuckery afoot and that everybody just quickly seems to accept this. And Christian is like, I, I don't know those guys. Like there's, it, it wasn't me. Like, like show me more, like being a total fuckhead. That is his supreme douchebag O'Neill scene. And <laughs> he's just so fucking harnessing it. And he got like the, the special coat with the tag on it. And he's just like, yeah, we wouldn't <laughs> dare associate ourselves with these people. And Danny's looking at him like, what the fuck? Yeah. Really though, she is. <laughs> yeah. And they are both immediately told Danny's told to go participate with the girls today. And Christian is told Siv wants to speak with you over there. So Danny, we're going to do a little bit, bit of bouncing back and forth here, and we're really fixing to hit the third act. So Danny, she's now in full, she's dressed like a local, full garb, which was all handmade specifically just for the, the movie. Nothing was repurposed, allegedly, according to the costumer. And she's given a psychedelic to drink, and they begin to dance around the maypole. And the maypole is the big green cock and balls, if anybody was wondering what that is. And I say that jokingly, but it is the maypole is a representation of fertility and like legit uh, Swedish pagan mythology. I'm just going to bring this up now because the man did a lot of research. And like I said, he, he kind of took some truths here, some truths there. He took liberties, but it's based off of history to an extent, right? Yes. And what she gets told or what we all learn is the uh, and she being Danny is the story of dancing to death for the dark one. And that their dance that they're about to do is in defiance of the Dark One, because what the Dark One did is he lured and manipulated all the girls to dance till they dropped dead. And it was a big joke to him. And that is actually that story is legit, but I don't think it's Swedish. I think he pulled it from somewhere else. OK, um, I could be okay. I could be completely wrong on that. And that's not specifically stated in the movie, though, right? Like that's no. just something from research. OK. Yeah. So they do the same thing, only they're obviously drugged because they drank the stuff. And Danny starts seeing her feet turn into grass, just like she saw her hand turn into grass earlier. So whoever, now that they're all fucked up, whoever can dance the longest gets to become this year's May Queen. So we already know it's going to be her. I mean, if you don't know it's going to be her, fucking stop the movie. You, I've seen the poster. She's got the crown and shit. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Meanwhile, this is where shit gets fucked up. God, shit gets <laughs> fucked up. This is where it gets fucked up to you? This, yes, this is. Don't, don't interrupt me for one paragraph. <laughs> All right. Hold my breath now. So meanwhile, Christian stares at his impending fate while he's waiting on Siv. And his impending, this room he's in, there's drawings everywhere. And right in front of him, there's a bear on fire. And they make it a point to show it for a minute and show that he's staring right at it. <laughs> Siv brings him into the next room and she asks how he feels about Maya because they have been approved to mate and are a perfect astrological match and Maya has fixed her hopes on him I think I ate one of her pubic hairs sounds probably right because that's a normal everyday conversation <laughs> literally it's your worst nightmare trying to get drunk and food at midnight <laughs> So as the dance continues, Christian is dosed unwillingly at first, but this little blonde chick talks him into it. And we see that Danny is the last one standing in the dance and she is carried away as the May Queen. They all sit down to eat and 
Christian, this is so good. This is so good. Cause they're sitting there and Christian's like starting to trip. And he's like, and of course she's tripping too. And like, everything's warbling and shit. And they're like, you're the May queen, eat the fish. And she can't eat the fish and it's not important. But anyways, Christian is starting to sweat. Yeah, but he, he's basically turned into Mark at this point from earlier in the movie. Where he's like, guys, I'm tripping really bad. I need help. Right? We well, asked the old dude. He's like, what's going on or what's wrong with me? And the dude just claps right in his face. It's like, boy, you thought you were fucked up before. Now you're really fucked up. And this is the part of the movie I was talking about at the very beginning where I'm like, his pupils, he looks so fucked up from here on out in the rest of the movie that they did something to him. If they wanted to be lazy about it and cheap about it, they could have just used contacts. Yeah. And they may have. I don't know. But uh, this is, I know I am I was being a dick and made a joke about let me get through this paragraph. This is the part I've been waiting for. Oh, I thought we passed the paragraph. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, on. no, I was, I was overzealous. <laughs> so now that he's fully fucked up tripping balls, he's called away by Maya. And what follows is the most uncomfortable sex scene in the history of cinema. And- I discussed that line with the wife. I am not including rape scenes. Okay. I'm saying just a straight up sex scene. This is the most uncomfortable sex scene I have ever watched in a movie. I mean, if I walked up to a random guy and say, I paid $10,000 to jerk off to a, a man and a woman having sex surrounded by a lot of naked women. Let's see if you can do it. They'd probably take the bet. <laughs> and then they'd lose and they don't need $10,000. You know what I'm saying? So while Danny is gone to bless the crops and the livestock, Christian gets put in his new robe and he's told to sniff this stuff. He says it's for vitality. So it's obviously like Viagra. And he goes into this room and Maya's laying in the floor. She presents to him. There's all these naked women standing behind her. It's the same room where they where the books kept. And uh, he just goes right for it as it's going on. Like the women start to moan and like grab themselves while Maya's into it. And this one la- and there's they're fucking singing. And this one lady gets down on the ground and grabs Maya's hand and is like rubbing it on her face and singing to, to Christian. And that's when he's looking up like, <laughs> yes, his peoples are so fucked right there. <laughs> it's like he looks like a dog. You just caught pissing on the carpet, but is going to finish. <laughs> <laughs> His faces are so great. I mean, it's terrible what's happening, but it's just like, huh? what's happening? What, am I asleep? Oh, I'm just going to go with it. <laughs> but while all this is going on, Danny comes back just in time to peek in and see. And she breaks down wailing again and ends up running, running towards or drag towards with the other girls back to the quarters. And while she's wailing in the floor, like she did when her parents died, the girls wail with her like they do in this community. And this is cut back and forth with the girls that are wailing in ecstasy with Maya while he's doing his thing. And it's fucked. And the old lady helps him finish. (laughs) And my God, (laughs) she just grabs his ass and just fucking rails him into us like we ain't got all day. I want to say something very important that I got out of that scene, though. Was it a hard on? Oh, no, no, no. (laughs) When Danny screamed and cried to Christian earlier in the movie, he just rubbed her hair and stared in the space. Now she's distraught from seeing Christian with another woman and she's moaning and crying and they're all crying with her. She's part of the community. She doesn't have a man now. She doesn't have a mother and father and a sister. She's now one of them. The grass has grown all the way up and engulfed her at this point. 
And she is part of this community already at this point, I feel like. Yeah, she is full on Swedish. Uh, actually, she's full on Hargan, to be serious. She's been accepted by the Hargan. So realizing his shame, Christian just needs to get away. Butt ass naked. Now, supposedly <laughs> he was supposed to be back in the robe and this was the actor's idea. He was supposed to be in the robe. He had recently watched Last House on the Left. The actor had. That's right. And he saw how vulnerable the girls were. And he didn't think it was right for him to be in like a, a similar rape scene and then and get to be robed. He was thinking that if he was butt ass naked running around, he would come off as more vulnerable and I got to tell you, as a guy, it worked like him covering his junk with his hand. Like, I don't want you to see me like this. It worked like it, it shows him yeah. as a more vulnerable character. It's like the the highs wearing off at this point. Right. And he's like, where the fuck am I? Yes, he is coming down in the worst possible way. And first he runs towards the garden and sees a foot sticking up out of the garden. Yes. Not not quite sure whose foot that is. And he ends up running into the chicken coop where he finds Simon in a full-on Blood Eagle. Yes, you finally got to talk about a Blood Eagle on the podcast. You've been wanting to do this for a year. I know, and they fucked it up. So many people don't understand what's going on in that scene anyways. It's like, it's his lungs or the wings. Come on. That, yes, but the moving, the lungs can't move without being in uh, contained and the diaphragm moving. I'm just, medically, that's wrong. Blood Eagle style, that's right. <laughs> How about psychologically destroying your mind? It works. Yeah, but, but the flowers in his eyes were pretty. <laughs> <laughs> moving on. So he's like, oh man, it's all fucked. It's all fucked. Just the look at his face. And then he gets dosed straight up serpent in the rainbow style. Exactly what I thought when they blew the smoke in his face. <laughs> so when he awakens, don't know if it's six hours later or not. They don't they don't go back to that. Well, he is told that he cannot move and he cannot speak. And I should stop joking except for the bear suit because this last part's pretty serious. Um, we see that him and everyone else is gathered around the sun stage, as I call it. And Civ explains that they have gathered to surrender nine human lives as an offering to their son father. Four outsiders, Simon, Connie, Mark, and Josh. She doesn't say that. I'm just pointing them out. Four from Harga. Two that are already prepared that she points to in the background that are already dead. Um, and two volunteers. And that the ninth will be chosen by the May Queen. The two volunteers are Igman. If I'm, am I saying his name right? And Ulf. Volunteers my ass. This is like a fucking weekly million dollar lotto winner here because they got the fucking thing and the ball rolls down and it's like this is your number your life is forfeit but that's that the lotto is for the one that the may queen gets to choose right right it, it, it's between whoever's fucking number got drawn and christian but to me, that was the most out of place thing. Not the mallet that smashes the home alone guy's head. The lottery <laughs> machine getting rolled out and they crank out and the ball goes down the fucking roller coaster. It was really out of place to me. This was the next part where I literally laughed. As soon as it showed the fucking lottery machine, man. I did honestly too. And I felt wrong about it. So it's made clear that she's going to have to choose, as you said, between lucky number whatever rune shape it was i forget the guy's name it's like thorn gun and they even they even say it's like, thorn gun come on down you've been chosen <laughs> it's the <laughs> price is right <laughs> it is man <laughs> but it's gonna be between him and christian and 
I want to point out Danny is now fully consumed by flowers. It's just her little face poking yes. out. <laughs> it looks absurd. <laughs> we don't get to see who she picks. It cuts away. And <laughs> we start to see the, all the straw stuff bodies being loaded into the temple. And this is when we see what's obviously Connie because of when she went missing. There's two scenes in the theatrical cut where you hear a woman screaming and no one says shit about it. Right. And she's wearing the the get up for the river ceremony that's that's left out of the theatrical cut. So that's obviously how they killed Connie by drowning. Yes. And everybody's being loaded inside the mustard temple. And that's just what I started calling. Is this a fucking game of Clue? (laughs) yes and you start realizing that the blue tarps on either side of it have been covering up the straw to keep it dry so they can use all that straw inside there to keep get the fire going because we've seen the girls taking the straw in earlier and didn't know why now we know and we see mark's skin stuffed with straw he's got a jester hat on because he's a fool right meanwhile this guy's showing these kids how to take the entrails out of a bear while Poor fucking Christian, and I don't feel sorry for him. I'm just saying his paralyzed ass is sitting in the little wheelchair watching this going on like, what the fuck they going to do? Yeah, because he's completely awake and he can see everything. I don't know if he can feel it, but he knows what's happening. He just can't move anything. Yeah, and they, they set him up on the table next to the bear and we cut back into the uh, the little temple and Ulf and Ingmar, I, I feel like I say his name wrong every time. Anyways, when they're put in there, they're like, take of the whatever tree and feel no pain. The yew tree. Okay. And uh, to the other one, take of the yew tree and feel no fear. And what's fucked up is it doesn't work for either one of them once the fire kicks off. And <laughs> in real science, you said will kill you. However, it does absolutely nothing to stop you from feeling pain. Okay. <laughs> and I'm. Pretty sure the person providing the USAP probably knew that. <laughs> the two willing participants did not, though, I feel like. Yeah. So, bear suit Christian is set right in the middle. <laughs> it's so ridiculous and so tragic at the same time. Yeah, because it's a tight shot of his face, and then it pulls out, and you realize <laughs> his face is in the bear's mouth. I, that's the third time I laughed, and that's where Ari Aster says he giggles every time. And honestly, I could have got up and left at this point in the movie, because now I know what the bear was for. The fucking question has been answered. <laughs> Thank God. And as the place is set ablaze, and the two guys scream... They look at each other and scream because they obviously can feel the pain because the USAP's some bullshit. Yeah. Well, everyone outside starts screaming and wailing and coughing like they can feel it, like we're still all one. But more importantly, even Danny starts screaming and coughing. Not that she's screaming for Christian, that she is definitely one now. She feels the same thing they feel. She stares at the crumbling mess of fire, frowning. Screams, cries, and then smiles. Because she is now one of them, right? Yep. And credits. And real quick joke I meant to make earlier. If this was Ari Aster getting this bad relationship out of his system, do you think there's a restraining order anywhere? (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) But part of his hands are tied by going off of old pagan rituals. 
This is true. That none were this insane. Not the 72-year-old people jumping, not the fires and stuff. Feast and celebration of fertility. That's what this was, what he was pulling. Which from. is why the Swedish people consider this movie as a dark comedy and not a horror film. Because I think it's like yes. a really funny interpretation of their, their ritual. Or it's not even their rituals. <laughs> that's actually wrong to say. Of the, of the past. I do want to say this is a prime example of a trailer being beautifully made. The trailer for this film ended on a scene with the man with the strings hanging in front of his face with the torch lighting the hay bales, but it was bodies in hazmat suits setting on the hay bales. Really? So you see in the trailer bodies being burned in the, the temple on the hay, but they're all bodies in hazmat suits, which had to have been shot like that just to conceal the plot. Yeah. But I didn't question it when I saw the when I saw the trailer. I was like, "Huh, what the fuck is this about?" And it, it, it's not one of those like I'm mad they shot a fake trailer scene because it essentially was the same thing that just masked the identities of the yeah. deceased. And I think it's really neat they fucking did that. I want to point out this is what I was talking about earlier with the days. Ari Aster said that this part of the ritual is day four out of nine. So what okay. the fuck happens on the other five days? I don't know, man. This is just the middle. This is the halftime show, bro. <laughs> and honestly, I don't know how you're supposed to get that. That was day four out of nine. They, they did say it's a nine day ritual in the, in the movie. Yeah. That was said. I don't know how you're supposed to get that. It's only day four. Maybe if the deleted scenes were in there, we could figure out how many days there were. And it made sense. Yeah. But I, I saw him say it himself. It was day four. I just want to know what happens after that. And maybe, <laughs> maybe we should dip into the deleted scenes out of, out of all of them. I mean, really, I felt like only one of them needed to be there. And it, even that needed to be clipped a little bit. The one where Danny's sitting still and has the argument with Christian about how, yeah, it's fucked up, but this is how they live. We need to just stay and watch. No, even that one could go because that was said in different ways. During the ritual, the river ritual scene is the one I feel like needed to stay. Okay. I agree with the Connie part. 100%. I just felt that the line of the guy saying that rumbling that you're hearing is not my stomach made the, the cult, the sect, whatever seem goofy, like everywhere else. They take things so seriously that it made me, I believed that they believed but that scene made me think it was just goofy and I couldn't believe them anymore. But if you think of mythology, whether it's Greek, Roman, Nordic, like any, any, any form of mythology, a lot of the old roots with the gods or the pagan gods or anything, it was always paying tribute to the straw, paying tribute to the river, paying yeah. tribute to oh, the no, rain. That, so, I mean, to me, it didn't seem out of place from that perspective. I, I just thought that, the dialogue sucked. That was my, okay. But you're right though. The Connie thing, the, the night and Danny totally agree that those, those could have been, those could have been in there and helped the story. Yeah. The extra, the extra stuff with Christian being a dick, the extra stuff about the thesis, those we didn't need. Well, the word fucking cathartic is used so many times about this movie and him himself. He said, it's, it's a completely, I want everyone to feel a mass catharsis at the end of this movie. And, you know, there can be more going. The point is, is you're supposed to be moved. And if you're moved into, I understand, or I don't know what the fuck I just watched. <laughs> that whatever. was me. That was me on that one. <laughs> he wants you to break, break out of some kind of a shell. It does that. Now you brought up. 
pagan, old gods, old, old, old religions, the back on my us kick reading shit on the internet about this and why people can't just listen to Ari Aster. The dumbest thing I saw was people saying that Christian is the one killed in the bear suit and that the entire point of the movie was to show paganism beats Christianity. (laughs) I half agree with them and half agree with you. I caught that and believe that in a way and read it in a way, but not exactly like how you said it. I don't think it was a hidden message on paganism's better than Christianity. I actually think it was more of like a dark joke on the pagan killed the Christian. I took it as the pagan and a Christian walk into a bar, right? Like that's <laughs> that's how I took it. The pagan sets the Christian on fire. Right. He douses him in, in paint thinner and sets him on fire. <laughs> exactly. I don't think it was supposed to be a hidden meaning on Christianity versus paganism. I honestly take it as a as a as a bar joke. Like they walked into a bar together, who came out, kind of thing. And that that's honestly how I interpreted it. It could have just been coincidence that his name's Christian. I just don't feel like there are such things as coincidences with Ari Aster. I feel like there's either a meeting or a joke affiliated with every decision that guy makes. Yeah, that I could give you. I do want to, in, in kind of closing here, I do want to say that on first watch, I bitched about Danny's arc and I bitched about Christian's arc because there were times where I'm like, no, we've been set up to where she wouldn't make this choice now. We've been set up to where he wouldn't act this way now. And then once I saw the interview where Ari said where he brought those characters from and the story that was playing out about the relationship, it totally changed the whole thing. And I I got it. I got it, understood it so much more than... I appreciate the movie so much more from that angle. But like I said before, it's an artsy movie that I can, I was able to watch without going, Oh, poo poo. It's too artsy. Um, It didn't feel as long as it is. The runtime did not, it didn't, it never feels like it's dragging. Definitely does not. But uh, it's great for what it is. Just not my bread and butter. It'd probably be a long time before I watch it again. Did you watch it more than once for the podcast? Um, I watched it once the first time watching it and the second time doing my notes. And that was it. Were you paying a lot of attention when you took your notes or were you more on the notes in the movie? Well, I went, I watched it once. Then I did a shit ton of research and then did my notes while watching it the second time. So I knew what I was watching for or what was, what, what to pay attention to. I will say to anyone who's ever seen this movie one time only and was like, okay, it was a good movie. I don't want to watch it again. Like I did when I saw it months ago, it is definitely worth one rewatch because you see the movie completely differently. And the way I was like, wow, this is just fucked up. Like that part is, I don't know why, but it's gone for some reason. And you can start seeing like why some countries considered it a black comedy and whatnot. Oh yeah. And I'm not saying that I, I completely saw it as a comedy. There's definitely more scenes that are comical, kind of like a pagan and a Christian walks into a bar, like I said earlier, but it, I don't know. The movie's different on second viewing. It's less disturbing and more of a film. And it's not like that whole, you know, some movies like Sixth Sense, right? You watch it and then you watch it a second time to see why you didn't figure out how Bruce Willis was a ghost, right? Yeah. This isn't like that. You just watch it a second time and you're like, I, I could see how this movie could be perceived more than one way. 
Yeah. And that's why I brought up how it affected me. Like I didn't like it very much and I bitched about the character arcs. And then so once I understood why it was written, I saw it completely different because I related to that. And there's so many things in there that people could relate to from the the clue finders to the, you know, the people who or into anthropology, you know, there's so many character subplots going on. It's a broad stroke that didn't feel like, you know, I've used the analogy of forwards like, oh, this movie feels like somebody just threw a bunch of shit in a box and shook it and dumped it out. And said, there's your movie. <laughs> it, it doesn't come off that way. It comes off smart. And you can see how Ari Aster is not a one trick pony and how is an off to war at the same time. Like just out of these two films yeah. one year apart. And that's the cool thing is that if that, one trick, which I would say is his shtick about taking a little bitty thing and making this big world around it in ways you'd never think of. Like you tell a layman that Midsummer's about a breakup, tell a layman that hereditary is about dementia or sorrow, just grieving and sorrow. And you're right on both accounts for both yeah. films. And you're so wrong at the same time, <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean? I don't know. This was one of them that, you know, there's there's a couple of directors we've looked at and some of them it was a little iffy because they didn't have that many movies or you thought they might be too slow of a burn. But this is one of them that I was really excited to dive into. And there's there was just a lot there. <laughs> and honestly, I think we'd be getting his third film in 2020 if there wasn't a pandemic currently going on. I can't wait till 2021, yeah. hopefully, where we get the next one. Oh, we always do this. You know, what would we like to see him do? Somebody asked him in the Lincoln Center thing. Uh, they asked him about gremlins is what they were asking him about. <laughs> and going back to how funny he is, he's like, um, I don't think there's anything I could do better than uh, or to upstage gremlins to the new batch. Like he totally ignores the first <laughs> one and goes straight to the second one. But it was it was a joke. But what he did say is that he's got a monster movie in him. That's what they were asking. And he's like, yeah, I'd love to do a monster movie. So I don't know if that was lip service or I could see it. I mean, so all the interviews I saw with him, he's got his 10 screenplays. He wrote, right. He's got all these mm -hmm. ideas. His plan was always to get into horror. It's just his first movie. Hereditary was not meant to be horror. He was going to do this family tragedy movie and then branch into horror was his initial plan. And he just went ahead and said, I'm going to slap horror on there on this first one. Right. And he did it. And it's it's his own kind of horror where he doesn't classify it as traditional horror. But I mean, <laughs> hereditary is a horror movie as far as I'm concerned. And and Midsummer goes more into horrific than horror. But that is a style of horror. And what you said that I didn't know, I didn't realize that that was like an uh, something that was brought to a 24, not one of his one of his 10 scripts. But his his intentions was to get in a horror so I bet we're going to start seeing that that monster film. We're going to see that ghost film. I mean, I always pray for a slasher film. I don't know if he's kind of got to do a slasher film for me, though. Um, probably not. But one last thing I want to say to put you inside his brain. He was asked about the two movies and him being so different. And he said, Hereditary is a horror movie. Midsummer is a fairy tale. Truth. And if that's his approach to a fairy tale, I'll, I'll, I don't care what the man does next. I'll see it. <laughs> the only other horror director that I can think of that did a fairy tale was M night Shyamala with uh, lady in the water. <laughs> right. Uh... I'm one of the few people I've ever met that liked that film. 
but I only watched it once and I've never watched it again. <laughs> and maybe that's why. But I enjoyed it when I watched it the first time. Oh. But guys, that's going to be it for the Ari Aster episode. I know it was a long one, but there was a lot to cover here. I feel like there were pretty deep dives with opinions and facts and covering the movies pretty deeply. And we probably still missed a significant amount of content. And let's face it, you're all stuck in quarantine, at least most of you right now anyway. So you probably are, are glad to have extra content to listen to because I personally am burning through backlogs of streaming television shows and podcasts right now because I have more time to listen to stuff. So hopefully we'll help you out there and hopefully we can help you guys out on the next episode when we cover video game horror films and not in the way that you're thinking, I bet. Can we skip this bullshit cinematic foreplay? I want to butter this muffin. As usual, guys, thanks for downloading the show and spreading the word. Please do not forget to rate and review us online, and please, please send us comments, questions, and suggestions to our email, sbspodcast at gmail.com. We would also love it if you could follow our Twitter and Instagram, both at sbspodcasts. This might motivate us to use them more. See you guys in the next one. Thanks for listening. Do you think that there is a masochistic part of you that is playing out this particular drama to avoid the work you actually need to be doing? <laughs> <laughs>